Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Friday morning, January. Scott, not January, June. <laughs> January. J U N. You spell June J U N E, not June J U N. Look at E on the end. Wow. A little like J A N. Yeah. It's not <laughs> January 23rd, but rather June um, 23rd. 843 661 0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We'll jump right into the content at hand. Okay. No need to talk about sports and athletics. Um, the College World Series is an SCC um, affair. LSU beat Wake Forest yesterday. Uh, Florida has been waiting for what, three or four days on the winner of the LSU Florida, excuse me, Wake Forest game. You, you kind of hate to see their team lose that game. I mean, really and truly. Um, Wake Forest is as good as anybody in America. The baseball gods just cut LSU a little bigger break than they did um, the Demon Deacons. Uh, a bit, I mean, I'm an SEC homer. I mean, I'll accept that. I'm in the fraternity, the brotherhood of the SEC. But but Wake is, you know, c- kind of David in this David versus Goliath. I mean, S- LSU has enormous budgets and Florida has enormous budgets. Wake Forest probably doesn't have quite the uh, the budget that LSU or Florida does. So I was pulling, um, I'm sorry, SEC brethren, I was kind of sort of pulling for Wake Forest to win because the underdog Trump, I mean, it's hard to believe Wake, I mean, they're the number one national seed, so they're not an underdog. But when you think of Wake Forest baseball, LSU baseball, Florida baseball, they would be the underdog in that uh, in that trifecta. Uh, that's all the sports I've got. I want to, I want to, Go down this road for just a second, and this is um. I mean, I, I'm a little bit perturbed this morning. Josh brings in, as he always does, the um the listings that Fox News has made available. We have these personalities. Some work for Fox. Some do not work for Fox. There was not a single person on the list. And Josh, what three pages? Three or four pages? About yeah. Not, not a single person on the list was available to talk about the ways and means. And the the breaking news yesterday of um, the IRS whistleblower who says X, Y, and Z about, uh, and I told Josh, as a sign of protest, just tell him we don't want anybody. Now, they did have somebody to talk a little bit. I think Tanya Powers was there about the sub, the submersible, not the submarine, but rather the submersible. I mean, I heard somebody say, what's the difference in a sub and a submersible? A submersible cannot get where it needs to be. You have to tow it or haul it, as we like to say. And then it can submerge itself into the ocean and do whatever it does, you know, kind of. But anyway, big tragedy, no question about it. I don't understand some of the jokes. I, I just yeah. don't understand that. I mean, right. I don't understand the humor that people find in that. I mean, you know, um, I've seen memes. I mean, yeah, but ter- I'm, I'm like, wow. Taste. I mean, what motivates you? What yeah. what what sickness do you have that motivates you to find any joy in you know people losing their lives you know, in pursuit of exploration? I just don't understand that. I mean, th- th- there will be a time to critique. Obviously, there is. And there's always been, um, you know, the, the cutting edge and those who take more risk than than others do. But I just, you know, you get what you deserve. Okay. I mean, it, it stop there. I mean, if you say that, that's about as far as I'm willing to go. But I did see some memes and some some posts yesterday on Twitter and, and Facebook that were uh, just senseless as far as I'm concerned. There is no joy when people die. Uh, other than criminals and, I mean, I guess in a war, you know, there's a good guy and a bad guy, or you think the good side and you think um, the, 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 the bad side. But, but the news of the day is, um, I mean, there, there's no question about it. It is 
the ongoing saga of Hunter Biden. I want us to take our attention off of Hunter Biden and let's pay attention where we need to, and that's Joe Biden. I mean, Hunter Biden is an accessory. Hunter Biden is um, a pawn in this game. I mean, no question about it. He's an important player. I mean, he would be, I mean, he wouldn't be Jerry's mom. He's Jerry, Elaine, George, or, or you know, Kramer. I mean, he's one of the, the central figures, but, but he's not the central figure. The central figure in all of this is Joe Biden. And I told Rev earlier, we're talking about, you know, where do we go from here? I believe that getting a kid in college, if, if Dave Baker was a ranking, uh, if Rev was a longtime senator and Rev's brother needed his kid, his kid was marginal with his, with his grades, and Rev pulled some strings and figured out a way to get his brother's kid, or his kid for that matter, into one of these prestigious universities that would lead to, you know, much prosperity hereafter. I, I get it. I mean, I understand that. And I think the public are bothered by that, but they, you probably get away with that. It, it's not chronic. It, it's not who you are. It's what you did. And it, it's hard to explain and hard to defend, but, but it's, it's kind of a one-off. Um, you know, Rev has a kid. And the kid is is smart enough to go to and, and, and has done well enough in school to go to Carolina Clemson, but he doesn't qualify to go to Stanford. But the likelihood of him being um, in this prestigious law um, office if he goes to Stanford increases exponentially. So Rev makes a decision. Hey, I've, I mean, and here's how he rationalizes it. I've given a lot to this country in the name of public service. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um <laughs> And because of that, I can look in the mirror and, and not be ashamed or embarrassed of the guy I am for pulling those strings. Now, obviously, if Rev, as a, a high-ranking government official, gets his kid into Stanford by pulling some string, a kid doesn't get in, right? I mean, there's only so many slots. And there's probably a little more deserving kid whose parent is not a high-powered politician, and that kid doesn't get into Stanford. But, but I still believe that, that Rev can get away with that because, once again, he doesn't do it every day. He doesn't do it every year. It's not the way he lives his life. This one moment in his existence requires him to do the absolute right moral and ethical thing or to fudge a little. And I don't think anybody would be surprised that 99% of Americans would fudge a bit. I mean, you would defend it. Um, you, you, would, you would find a way to justify it. I mean, we're all in the business of self-justification, whether we like to admit it or not. I am, you are, everybody is. So, so Rev would justify that by saying, man, I get the crap beat out of me in the newspaper. You know, I have to go back home and listen to these hellraisers about what I did or, or didn't do. So, so I look in the mirror and say, uh, you know, I, I get one in my category. I get one in my column, so to speak. I kind of earned it. But, 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 but what if, what if right. every kid at Stanford was there because Rev call the uh, the provost or the president of Stanford and say, I got another two kids this year. Got another three kids this year. Sooner or later, somebody goes, wow, dude, really? I- I'll give another. He probably won't like this. I'll give another example because um, I'm bad about putting our business on the street. Mm-hmm. We are a Braves affiliate. When the Braves suck, there's not a big demand for their tickets. When they win, people want to go. So, so Rev only gets so many tickets. I mean, being an affiliate, they reach out to Rev and say, hey, man, appreciate you being an affiliate affiliate and because of this partnership and because it serves both of us as mutually beneficial um you know call me every now and then if you need a couple of tickets to a braves game 
But what if Rev called every game asking for 8 or 10 or 12 <laughs> or 16 in the Delta Club? Right. That wouldn't go over too well. That's it, it what wouldn't. the Bidens have done. Yeah. I mean, the Bidens have called in to the Braves front office every day for 30 years, maybe 40 years, asking for 16 seats in the Delta Club. That's a lot different than Rev calling once a month saying, hey, I got a sponsor who likes the Braves. Is there anything we can do? To-? Yeah, we got a couple of tickets. Might have four. Let me call you back Friday. We may have four for the weekend. He carries kids with him. I mean, that, that's, that's a reasonable transaction in a, uh, in a bit political world. I mean, that, that's the nature of business. But I just got to believe that if Rev called every day asking for 16 tickets in the Delta Club, his Braves guy would say, I can't do that, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. Enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I just can't do that. I mean, that's you shouldn't ask me, and I got to say no. That's what the Bidens have done. They, they've not gotten one kid into Stanford. They've not asked for four tickets for one weekend to a Brave series. They've gotten I mean, the entire junior class at Stanford is there because Joe Biden inquired and, and, and basically advantaged whomever he's advocating for in the name of I'm the former vice president, current president. I'm 30, 40-year senator. And, and you know, you know how that world works. A wink, wink, nod, nod. I mean, there's a, uh, a what app text out. I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not. When Hunter Biden threatens this foreign national, um, you know, about I got my dad sitting here and my dad doesn't play. And you don't want to get on my dad's bad side because my dad knows a lot of people. And if you're on his bad side, you're on their bad side. Well, I mean, that's the that's who they are. They're not political prostitutes. I owe you an apology. The Clintons are political prostitutes. The Bynes are political thugs. I mean, it's thuggery. I mean, it's, it's political thug. They have no redeeming qualities that lead to success of the free market. That they was a shakedown. Well, I mean, sure, that's that, what they are. I mean, that's who they are. That's what they're about. And, and I know these are accusations and allegations. Um, and I told Rev, if you do that one time, I mean, let's say you let's say you get a kid in Stanford and you're not supposed to, a, a marginal kid, you know, um, a, a big donor of Rev's calls him one day and says, hey, man, my kid made this on the ACT, this on the SCT, you know, their GPA is this. It's good enough to get in Carolina Clemson. It's not good enough to get in Stanford. Is there anything you can do to help me, Rev? And Rev says, I don't know. You've been real good to me, man. Let me call out there and see. So, you know, it's not protocol. It's who to call. Rev knows who to call. Somebody in his staff knows who to call. And out of that comes, you know, a, um, a return phone call. Hey, tell them to apply and put attention such and such. But that's the way the world works. But I don't think any of us are surprised by that, right? I mean, I think we all expect that to happen um, to some degree. But it can't happen over and over and over. It can't be who you are. It can be what you do on rare occasions, but it can't be who you are. I'll, I'll level with you. I've done that. I mean, as a former elected official, at certain times in my political life, when I could do a favor for someone that may or may not, it's questionable whether they deserve this or not, I did it. But I didn't do it a hundred times. I mean, when someone would come to me with a problem and, and and inquire whether I could help, very often I said I can't do anything with that. I mean, I can tell you who to go talk to, but but I can't I can't do anything with that. But but every now and then it was a bit squishy, and I could. You know what my response always was, and Rev knows this. Don't ask me how we did it. I mean, you've you've, you've told me your problem. I think I can help you, but don't ask me what I'm gonna do. I'd rather not explain it explicitly or as explicitly as you'd probably <laughs> like to have it explained. 
And, um, and you know, a, a month later, he'd, I'd bump into him, thank you for whatever you did. Fair enough. Okay. That's just, but, but it can't be chronic. It can't be the family business. I mean, you, you can, you, I don't want to say you can cash in on being an American politician, but you can to some degree cash in on being an American politician. Now, legally, you can register as a lobbyist and make a lot of money working on K Street. I mean, if you want to go that route, serve two, three, four terms in the House, sign up for a uh, consulting or lobbying firm on K Street and go to work and make a lot of money. I mean, I don't like that. I think that's what's wrong with, with politics very much. But, I mean, it, that's that's legal. I mean, if you register as a lobbyist, you're, you know, and you're a former member of Congress, you're the um, you're what everybody's mad about. You're who everybody's angry with, but you're doing everything within the boundaries of or the confines of the legal structure we've created. I don't like it. Most of you don't like it. Um, I think you should, if you leave Congress, you should have to wait five years before you can lobby. That's not the, the way the world works today. Um, I think there's some, I think Trump may have said something like that. You know, you, you sign a, when you sign an employment contract to work at the Trump White House, you, um, it prohibits you from lobbying for the next five years. I mean, I, I kind of like that. Uh, I don't think you stop somebody from making a living. And if their networking has been in the world of politics, why shouldn't they be allowed to, you know, make money off of that? Um, but, but Biden, and, and I want to go through this um, as extensively as we know, because Rev said, uh, what, what do we make of this? And what do we, here, here's where we are. And Tucker talked about it um, yesterday in his Twitter. The, the conspiracy, everybody listening to my voice has an ability to believe some degree of conspiracy theory. Now, I'm in the deep end. <laughs> I'm not in the kiddie pool. <laughs> you know, some, some are in the kiddie pool. Some are in the, uh, the, the ankle-deep water. Um, but because the deep end is, is where the, uh, that's where the sharks of conspiracy theory reside. And I don't want to get out there, man, cause there's some nuts out there. I mean, th- th- there's some crazy fools out there that believe the entire world is one big conspiracy theory, but everybody believes to some degree, or, or maybe you are entertained by conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theories challenge your wit. I I text a listener to our show several weeks back, thought about it this morning. Are you smarter or dumber to believe in conspiracy theories? He thinks you're smarter because it takes some analytic of the odds. Um, And and where am I going with this? Well, the conspiracy theory, I mean, if you believe that Joe Biden is a victim of a right-wing conspiracy theorist, then do the analytics. We got bank records. We've got LLCs. We've got an FBI whistleblower. We've got an IRS whistleblower. We got foreign nationals. We've got, you know, uh, recordings of conversations. But there's a lot there. And do you believe that the FBI whistleblower is lying? The IRS whistleblower. There are multiple FBI whistleblowers, multiple IRS whistleblowers, multiple bank records. Um, multiple LLCs, um, multiple foreign nationals. I think 17 uh, alleged phone conversations. But do you believe every bit of that is a, is a conspiracy? A right-wing extremist conspiracy theory to take down an American president? I mean, let's say half of it's right. Let's say half of it is off, off kilter, off center, um, not accurate. You, you still got foreign nationals. You got whistleblowers within some of the most powerful agencies of our government. You've got foreign nationals. 
You got paper trail of bank records and LLCs. The guy and his family have have, have long trafficked in political thuggery. And I owe you an apology. Because I've called the Bidens in, in the in the same vein as the Clintons political prostitutes. The Clintons are political prostitutes. I mean, they're probably political thugs to some degree, but but they're they're, they're smarter, that they're savvier, they're more intellectual. Um, the Bidens just aren't very smart, and and at some point in time in their family's existence, they decided this is the only way we'll live like we'd like to. But I mean, this is our only shot. We're not going to start and run a business. We're not going to come up with some great invention. Um, we're not going to inherit a lot of money. Joe is the, uh, he's kind of the leader of the, uh, the band and he makes a buck 85. That's a good salary. That's a real good salary. Um, now, now Biden got an advance on a book. I mean, I, I told Rev this morning, I think we're talking somewhere between 30 and $50 million. Wow. I mean, I, I do. I mean, I, I believe we're talking about, I mean, I know we're discussing 2 million in this year and 3.8 million overall. I think once we get to the bottom of what the Bidens have probably done, you're talking about somewhere in excess of 30 million, just south of 50 million. I mean, that's that's wealth. I mean, a couple of million here. I mean, I hear people saying, "What? That's not wealth." Well, I mean, in that world, it really isn't. I mean, it's just not. I mean, a couple of million bucks is not. Uh, it's not out of the norm in that world. 30, 50 million, you start getting there. And, and I think the Bidens, at some point in time in their existence, realized that Joe Biden is our cash cow. And Biden played along. And let's all get rich together. And and I, I just think there, once again, Joe Biden didn't get one kid one year into Stanford. Joe Biden didn't call the Braves and say, hey, on this one weekend, can I get four tickets for my biggest sponsor? I think they've called the Braves every day, asking for 16 tickets in the Delta Club. And I think they've called the professor, excuse me, the provost at Stanford every year, asking for half the class to be of their of their choosing. I use that as an analogy. Obviously, it has nothing to do with the Braves or Stanford, but but they have abused the rights granted to them by a family member being a very prominent American politician, and they're about to be found out. Eight four three. Really? I, I think so. You believe I, so? Yes, sir. I do. I really and truly believe. We've thought that before. Well, I mean, yeah, this is different. I mean, trust me, this is different. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, I know I don't think Rick and Bob will be here today. I think he texted me yesterday and said, you know, um, create the magic without me. So, uh, you know, Low <laughs> and did. Jordan, we'll find out in about an hour and a half. So I'm pretty encouraged by what you said right before the break. So you believe this? I mean, this time, how many times have we thought, okay, this is it? You know, it's it's going to come out. People are going to see what the Bidens have been doing, and, you know, they'll have to account for that. Well, I, mean, I, I think, um, but, had, you, but you think now is the time. I think we're beginning to find out, and I go back to the analogy, that the Bidens asked for 16 tickets in the Delta Club every day. You can't sweep that, un, that under the rug. I mean, there's too much there there. I, I sincerely believe that. If the Bidens had done this in 2014 and never again, okay, they probably survived that. But, but they didn't. I mean, this is the family business. And I just believe, I mean, all that we already knew, I mean, we, we've already known. I mean, Jim Comer's not going to say we got bank records when he doesn't. I mean, Comer's got bank records. There are LLCs. Uh, there are whistleblowers. Uh, th- these are accusations 
but they're very credible ac- accusations. I mean, it is, um, it is what, what about circumstantial evidence? I mean, we didn't see Joe Biden sit down. We didn't see Hunter Biden give his father an envelope full of cash money. But, but I, I think we get closer to that than you can imagine. I went back and read several accounts yesterday. Um, believe it or not, the mainstream media, Washington Post, has been forced to go down this road. That leads me to believe. I mean, when, when the Washington Post includes an article about, you know, an IRS whistleblower saying certain things about the Bidens, the, the Post and Times and Wall Street Journal realize, uh, well, we got to, I mean, th- th- this story's not going away. I mean, this is not getting one kid into Stanford. This cat may have gotten the entire class for two consecutive years, you know, of his likings uh, in at Stanford. But you've got an IRS supervisory agent named Gary Shapley. Um, Shapley is saying or telling the Ways and Means chair, Jason Smith, that he had affidavits, he had document requests, he had search warrants, um, he wanted to conduct about 15 or 20 interviews, and he had this cross-agency um, stifling of everything he wanted to do. The DOJ said, no, you can't do that. Well, well, my point is, if the DOJ r- makes a, um, a, an activist effort to stop an IRS supervisory agent from conducting an investigation, why? I mean, is the Biden administration going down with, with Hunter Biden? I mean, is, is Merrick Garland going to forever stain his relationship, or excuse me, his reputation because of Hunter Biden? I mean, really? Who's going to devastate their, their careers for Hunter Biden? No, you don't. I mean, nobody's doing that. I mean, Hunter's on his own. I mean, that's one of these, I'm sorry, my man. I mean, somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to go down. I mean, somebody's got to be the fall guy. Somebody's got to be the, the scapegoat. That's not where we are. But but it's, it's Joe Biden. Wow. I mean, it's the Biden crime wow. family. That's where we are. Once again, we have an FBI. We have multiple FBI whistleblowers, multiple IRS whistleblowers. We have bank records. We have LLCs. We have offshore bank accounts. We have foreign nationals. We have um, phone recordings. All of these are alleged. You've got, and now, as of yesterday, you've got an IRS supervisory agent. We got his name, Gary Shapley. He says to the Ways and Means chair, Jason Smith, hey, dude, I had affidavits. I had document requests. The document request is Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, the search warrant, one of the search warrants is Hunter Biden's laptop. Another search warrant is the Biden Beach House. I mean, he wanted access to the laptop and, and the Beach House. He wanted to conduct about somewhere in excess of 15, as many as 20 interviews with, with, with people that he thinks know a lot about what the Bidens are doing, what Hunter Biden um, did do. The IRS made a recommendation in January of 2022 to charge Hunter Biden with felony tax evasion charges in 2014, 18, and 19. That There's a certain investigative committee in the IRS that investigates foreign transactions. You know, how, how many of these foreign nationals are laundering money or how many people in, you see where I'm headed. I mean, they're, they're exclusive to um, some of the foreign transactions, money that comes from overseas, offshore bank accounts. I mean, it get real sophisticated and extravagant, but they made a recommendation in January of 2022 to uh, charge Hunter Biden with felony tax evasion because of the foreign aspect here. I mean, it's a foreign task force. Um, in 14, 18, 19, misdemeanors in 15, 16, and 17. That was in January 2022. DOJ did not concur with that recommendation. I mean, do you really believe the DOJ is going down the tubes for Hunter Biden? 
I mean, do you think the FBI is in the tank for Hunter Biden, the kid of a president? You don't believe the DO, you don't believe Merrick Garland would walk into the Oval Office and tell Joe Biden, hey, I hate this with all my heart, but your kid's done some things he never, ever should have done, and he's going to have to pay the piper. That's not where we are, guys. The DOJ and FBI are not going to forever stain their reputation. I mean, it's stained enough as it is. I mean, it's it's terribly, terribly. I mean, the majority of Americans believe we have a two-tier justice system. Well, who applies justice? The DOJ and FBI. I mean, that's the heavy hand of government and the application of justice. So 56% of Americans already believe they're corrupt. They already believe there's a double standard. They already believe that they're in the tank for one political agenda over over another, one political party over another. And you think they're going to take a bigger hit? You take you, you really believe that the DOJ and FBI go to work every day, you know, the 56% of Americans believe they have a, a different way of doing business with one group of people than they do another group of people. And you think they're going to defend Hunter Biden? So could I ask something? Sure. Because um, frankly, at the moment, I'm not as optimistic as you seem to be about this issue. I So what do you think? Why are you not as optimistic? optimistic? Because kind of what Rev alluded to earlier, that things like that, this have happened before. Things like this have happened. What's something similar to this? I can't really think of any examples. But I understand of, but what you're saying. I yeah, understand. Every time we think there's a smoking gun, right. so to speak. This ain't a smoking gun. I mean, this is our artillery. I, this is the whole cavalry. So what, what I was going to ask was, what do you think is the best case scenario that's going to come out of this worst case for the Bidens? Hmm. Like, do you think they'll be charged with treason? Will The person that I time? think has the most legal peril today is Merrick Garland. Okay. Remember, hmm. who was the AG when Nixon was president? He was the first guy to fall. It was a cover-up. I mean, you know, we mm. found the DOJ was complicit in helping Nixon with the cover-up. And, I mean, I can't think of his name. Uh, Google that. Okay. Who went to jail during the Nixon saga? Okay. I mean, it, it, Jim Mitchell, I don't know why that name um, sticks out. But, but no, the, uh, to me, Merrick Garland has a lot of legal exposure here. I mean, if these accusations are true. I mean, if the DOJ stonewall the IRS from conducting an investigation, they've got big problems. John Mitchell? That's it, John Mitchell. Wow. wow. Yeah, John, wow. John Mitchell. You knew. Well, I mean, John, John Mitchell wow. went to jail. That was it, yep. I mean, he went to jail for helping Nixon cover up some of, the, some of the Watergate problems, some of the Watergate issues. Josh, I think that's the first shoe to fall. Okay. I think I think it's going to be easy to prove whether or not the DOJ stonewalled or covered up or didn't allow an investigation. Once again, you've got an IRS whistleblower, a supervisory agent. We got his name. I mean, he's not some um, you know um, unknown source. I mean, he's not some confidential human source. We got a dude that has worked 15 years in the IRS. Now, now he might be the biggest liar on the planet. We don't know that. But he's made some real serious accusations that seem to corroborate information we already had. You got the Ways and Means and Jason Smith chairing that committee. You've got James Comer, the Oversight Committee, and they seem to be singing off the same sheet of music. Now, now I'm, I'm not naive to this. I got to believe that Smith probably talked to Comer, and they probably shared some information. Um, they've shared some with us, 
I got to believe there's some information they've got that they've not they've not shared. But it looks to me like they're very confident in building a case. And all of a sudden, Merrick Garland is complicit. Merrick Garland. Now, now, now here's the question that I, I begin to kind of ask myself: Is Garland's motivation because the Republicans did him the way they did uh, in not being a member of the Supreme Court? I mean, every lawyer begins his career one day wanting to be. I mean, I would imagine. Uh, you can say, well, I don't want to be that. Well, how about if they offered you that? I mean, if you're a lawyer in Podunk, South Carolina, and somebody comes along and says, hey, the president wants you to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't really want to do that. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I believe that. Uh, but you see, so so Garland has this, this, this motivation of not only am I working at the pleasure of the president, serving at the pleasure of the president, I got a chance to get back at the guys that didn't allow me to live my dream, to become a member of the um, the U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, but but I think I mean I think obviously Hunter Biden's got problems. I think Merrick Garland, if these accusations are true, has absolutely obstructed justice. I mean, there is no doubt about it. I mean, in the most forceful way imaginable, he runs the DOJ. DOJ has oversight over the FBI. FBI conducts investigations concurrently with the IRS. I mean, these are tax related. This is not the gun charge. You know, this is all about the taxes. The the IRS recommended, once again, from what I read yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Politico, might have been the Hill, the Hill, that they are, there's this, there's this special task force within the IRS that pays close attention to people laundering money from foreign governments, people receiving payments from foreign governments, uh, business being transacted between foreign nationals, foreign governments, normally our political adversaries and people in the United States. What is Paul Manafort getting paid for? Remember, Manafort got in trouble for not disclosing that he was lobbying for a foreign government. I, mean, there, I think it's NARA, N-A-R-A, I think is I mean, it's some you know form you got to fill out to let everybody know, hey, I'm here, but I'm working on behalf of a foreign government. Hunter Biden didn't fill that form out. I mean, there's another violation. But, but forget Hunter Biden a second. This is not about Hunter Biden. To me, Hunter Biden's the third person in this episode, in this latest episode, the most important is obviously Joe Biden. How much money has Joe Biden gotten paid for being in politics? I'm not talking about fundraising. I'm ta- talking about donations. I'm not talking about health care and retirement and all these other sorts of things. How much money have foreign nationals funneled in to these 15 or 20 LLCs, and how much of that money has been funneled to Joe Biden, directly or indirectly? Remember the story that Hunter Biden was paying his father fifty grand a month to live in the beach house. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know what that is. That's funneling money. But I mean, that's exactly what it is. I mean, who's going to charge their kid fifty grand a month, and what kid's going to pay fifty grand a month? I mean, you know, you can rent the entire floor at the Ritz Carlton for fifty grand a month. So, so you know, that what's that smell like? I mean, once again, these are accusations. But, but the the person this morning with with the the, the biggest problem is Merrick Garland. Because the IRS is saying that they did, I mean, the, the, the IRS is on the record. And I'm talking about a supervisory agent saying we wanted affidavits. We wanted, do- we, we made document requests. We had search warrants. We wanted to conduct 15 to 20 interviews. And this, this cross-agency stifling is what I'm calling it by the DOJ had to be at the direction of Merrick Garland. I mean, nobody at DOJ makes that call. I mean, Merrick Garland makes that call. Don't let them proceed with search warrants. 
Don't let them interview those 15 to 20 witnesses. Don't let them um, have access to those affidavits. The affidavits are going to lead to search warrants. I mean, that's the way that would have um, would have played out, and that would have eventually, um, you know, you would have had some interviews conducted about, you know, what do you know, what don't you know. We're not talking about Tony Bobolinsky. I mean, we got all these other parties that have said certain things, incriminating things about the Biden. I just don't know how you get out of this. Now, now, you know, what happens to Joe Biden? Don't know. I mean, something tells me that the Democrats dump him. I mean, something tells me that there'll be less defending of Joe Biden as this story progresses. And it, I mean, anytime the Washington Post covers a negative story about a Democrat, I mean, they, they've accepted the fact that this isn't going away. We can't wait this one out. We can wait that one kid getting into Stanford out. We can't wait the entire sophomore class being, you know, Joe Biden's handpicked kids and who he wanted uh, to be there. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. The 661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. So you're talking about this Biden saga, and you brought up Bill Clinton. Did right? I do a decent enough job explaining why I think this is a big deal? Yeah, I don't okay. know that I'm convinced. You've explained it, but I guess you know I keep going back to I've seen it before. I've heard it before. It what have you like, seen before like this? Well, nothing precisely like this, okay. but, you know, the, the mainstream media has ignored these stories for how long? Until now. Right. So you have a little Washington Post action. Is that part of what makes you think that sure. this I mean, is Sure. NBC News and Washington Post began covering the story, and I think that leads me to believe. I mean, this is a hunch. Um, it leads me to believe that they know there are big problems here. Now, now I'm speculating, and I've done a, a lot of digging here. I mean, I've read a lot about it, tried to understand it. I think we're talking in excess of $30 million. I really believe that. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think you'd say that if you didn't believe. Well, and and I mean, you got five point eight million this year. You got two point seven million that year. We got a lot of income we didn't report. Um, why didn't we we report it? You, you got. I mean, you just got a lot of smoke there. I mean, there, there's a lot of smoke there, and we we tried to argue. But you, you said something there to break about Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but 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 think about this, guys. Um, I mean, Clinton's saga was an embarrassment. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But who's real surprised? that a powerful man allowed a young woman and a young woman was willing to a powerful man. I mean, no, nobody, I mean, that's the human condition. I mean, nobody is that surprised. I mean, it's, it's slack and nasty and embarrassed the, um, the country and was beneath the dignity of the office. I mean, I don't argue any of that, but it wasn't millions of dollars. People understand that. People understand and accept that that is part of who we are. When a powerful man and a young woman or mutually interested in one another, ain't much good coming of that, right? I mean, there just ain't much good going to come of that. But but it didn't, I mean, it didn't sail the country down the river. And I'm not saying Joe Biden sold the country down the river. But, but somebody in a foreign land paid the Biden family millions and millions and millions of dollars for what? For what? I mean, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton will be forever remembered as kind of slack and nasty. But we're not talking about slack and nasty. We're, we're talking about treason. What we're talking about, you know, selling out your country. I mean, once again, I don't know that that's what happened. But I think that's the investigation we must pursue. And here's the fundamental question. If foreign governments paid the Bidens as much as I think they paid the Bidens for access to the government, what did they get in return? What did our government do at the request of Joe Biden to make it worth foreign governments who aren't really our friends, and I'm talking about Ukraine and and China, 
I mean, what did they expect? What did they receive in return? I think that's where we investigate. And once again, as it relates to Hunter Biden, he's a troubled man. I mean, he's been an addict. He's been, uh, I mean, how troubled do you have to be to get kicked out of a sex club? I mean, that, that's pretty wild. Um, you got kicked out of what? Not Princeton, not Yale, not Harvard, but a sex club? I mean, so he's a troubled man, but this is not about Hunter Biden. This is about the Bidens and, and what Joe Biden has been able to do to create enormous wealth within his family and what did he give in return. Let's go to the phone. Breeze joins us now. Hey, good morning. You're on the air. They'll, they'll do what they want to do. If they want to convict you, they will. But here's a question. Uh, didn't the Republicans, at least, you know, you Democrats may not do nothing about it, but didn't the Republicans, just like, you, just like everybody said, they all knew what was going on. The Republicans had control of the House and Senate at different times, at least the House back during the Obama administration. Why did they do something then? Why are they doing it now? And another thing, too, is uh, everybody knew that Bill Clinton was probably the best the Democrats had to offer. Wouldn't you agree, kid, when it came time to run for president? I mean, uh, if, they were gonna put, if they were going to put their guy up, it had to be Bill Clinton, right? You're talking about in, in, in back when Clinton ran. Right, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. Was, I mean, there was, there was no doubt. No Bill Clinton was the best politician the Democrats had, right? M- might have been the best politician on the planet at the time. Exactly. Barack Obama was the best politician the Democrats had, right? No Joe doubt. Biden. When Joe Biden announced that he was running for president against uh, Donald Trump, there's not a fart chance in a hurricane that that boy won the Democrat primary. You know, there's no way that he won the Democrat nomination. Somebody, I would bet you money that the Democrats rigged their own. What they did, it they did was Hillary and uh, Bernie Sanders. There's no way that I mean, Democrats may be dumb enough to vote for any Democrat over Republican. But are Democrats dumb enough to vote for Joe Biden over a more qualified Democrat? They ain't that dumb, Artie. You Thank, know what I'm saying? Sure I, I do. Don't, I, don't think, I don't think Joe Biden won the damn primary. I don't think Hillary Clinton won the damn primary. I believe if it would have been up to the Democrat, most voters, Bernie Sanders would have been running. And I believe if it had been up to Democrat party voters, it would have been somebody other than Joe Biden. And it just amazes me how these little communist Democrats will sit there and fall in line and not complain about it. If I were a Democrat right now, I'd be saying, hell, I'd never, how did Joe Biden become our nominee? How did we get to that stage? And then the next question you have to ask yourself, how did we end up with Mitt Romney or Dagona, or the Dagona? McCain, if you really want to think about it, how did the Republicans end up with him? I think we've been getting daggone screwed for a long damn time, boys. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. But but that really goes back to what we touched on yesterday. And we did a podcast yesterday. It'll it'll uh, publish today. It'll be available sometime after um after ten o'clock, no stoplights. And uh the the theme of that was what we talked about yesterday. And this gets a little bit complicated, weedy. If I can say that, um, you know, Rev kind of scratched his head. I don't know, man. I don't know if he got me there yet or not. Um, I, I argued yesterday that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were saying similar things. 
I mean, they, they were saying it to different audiences without question. Um, not a lot of young people voted for Trump. Uh, obviously, no conservatives voted for, for Bernie Sanders. But they were basically saying that the game is rigged. Now, now forget Joe Biden for a second. Let, let's go back all the way to Trump. But because when Trump shows up, what is Trump? Trump's a threat. A threat to who? I mean, what, what is Trump? Trump's a moderately conservative, pro-business American president. I mean, what, what is he threatened? I mean, who does he threaten? Well, I mean, he, see, he threatens the establishment. And, and see, I don't think any of us have ever, I mean, I, I think I do to some degree, but I don't think the majority of you have accepted how much was at stake. When Trump says the game is rigged and drained the swamp, he says, let's take billions and billions and billions of dollars out of those who may or may not deserve and, 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 and give it back. Here's the argument I'm making. I'm, I'm rambling, but stick with me for, for two seconds because this, I mean, this goes to the fundamentals of uh, not Trumpism. I mean, it's, it's bigger than Trumpism. Um, Rev asked me during the break, well, you know, the title of the podcast. I mean, I'm struggling with the title of the podcast, Activist Conservatism. I mean, I think Trump and Trump ushered in, and, and once again, Trump is a what? He's a manifestation, correct? I mean, he, he's not an answer. I mean, Trump is not the answer. Trump is the the frustration expression. I'm so frustrated, and I'm so PO'd that I'm willing to vote for this guy. I don't know where we go from here, but I'm willing to, to vote for this guy. And at the center of this argument, and this really goes to uh, kind of the, what Joe Biden's in trouble, what I think he's in trouble for is this inside baseball where people have made enormous amounts of money and they've not contributed proportionally to the economy. The point I tried to make yesterday and on the podcast, when remember when Drew McKissick called yesterday and we talked about is this, um, I mean, let's get biblical for a second. You ready? This too shall pass. I mean, that's what a lot of the National Review uh, readers want to happen. That's what a lot of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, I mean, they like this, this too shall pass. I mean, Trump was a, a kind, of, kind of a hissy fit, fit and rage. We'll get back to business as usual. I believe that at the center of this political movement that we're dealing with, forget conspiracy theories, forget Joe Biden. Let's go to the kind of the epicenter. Where did the earthquake start? I mean, where is the original fault line? I believe that in a capitalist society, you, you've got these fundamentalist markets. Um, you, you, they're almost dogmatic. I mean, they believe in the free market. They, they so, uh, they're, they're fundamentalist about the free market. We don't want government. The heavy hand of Adam Smith, uh, you know, economic expression, economic freedom. Uh, you know, the heavy hand of government distorts and manipulates. Yes, it does. And it has. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And that's the creation of America first. I mean, if somebody said, okay, you're the captain of America first, what, what, what do you want to do? I mean, you're the boss. I mean, all of a sudden, you've ended up captain of the team. Your team is America first. You got MAGA. You got America firsters. You, you got, you know, some of these questioning Republicans. But, but what do you want to see done? Here's what I want to do. And in a national system of capitalism, because I think globalism has allowed labor arbitrage. I mean, we're getting a bit economic speaking now, but I think, I think globalism has allowed for labor arbitrage. What does that mean? It means labor we begin finding cheaper places to make things. I mean, gl globalism invited that, invited and led to labor arbitrage. If you're going to have a capitalist system that allows a country to function in a kind of a happy-go-lucky way, 
and everybody believes they're getting a fair shake, because if everybody believes they're getting a fair shake, Donald Trump gets 8% of the vote. But there's no way. I mean, everybody doesn't believe the system is fair. And that's the, the vote for Trump. I mean, I don't think the system is fair. And Donald Trump is the only one that says he doesn't think the system is fair either. And, and then he kind of adds a cherry on top by saying, I know it's not fair because I helped build it. Right? I mean, everything you think mm-hmm. we've done, we've done. Everything you think we'll do, we'll do. Every advantage you think we've gained, we have. How do I know? Because I'm one of those that built that machine that you working class people don't like. But in a capital system, you've got to have kind of a gentleman's agreement that that capital is to, to be perceived a certain way and labor is to be perceived a certain way. They've got to be mutually beneficial. I mean, you can't have a free market without capital. You can't have a free market without labor. But when government distorts and manipulates an economy that so advantages capital over labor, you get discontent. I mean, this is how revolutions start. When, when, you, when you more favorably treat capital and, and, and undervalue labor, you create, well, once again, um, I, I'm arguing, I'm not an anti-corporatist Republican. I mean, I say that to be provocative. You know what I am? I'm an anti what corporations have been able to do to distort, manipulate the influence on our government. That's what I'm against. I'm not against, I mean, corporations hire people to pay taxes and do wonderful things for, for communities, but, but something they do that I think they, I mean, I think they do too much of this. I think the government has, I don't blame the corporations for trying to, um, you know, levy their influence on government with lobbyists and consultants and fundraisers. I don't blame corporations for that. I blame the government for giving in to that. So the undue influence that major corporations have been able to have over our system of government has treated capital far more favorably than it's treated labor. And you have labor arbitrage, and companies leave to go to China. They leave to go to Malaysia. They leave to go to India. Why? Because you make more money doing that. Well, there's got to be some mutual benefit to capital and labor. And government policy advantage capital over labor. And that's why the working class said, screw this. Of this globalist interventionist party that Marco Rubio embodies and Chris Christie and Jeb Bush, I don't want that. I mean, I don't know that they sat down, Rev, at the supper table or, you know, dinner table. You want to be proper and polite. I don't know that they sat down and said, you know, this globalist interventionist neoconservative party not been in our best interest. I think they looked around and said, I'm making as much money now as I was making 30 years ago. Less when you account for inflation. And I just think that that's the fundamental. Once again, I don't know that Yale and Stanford and Harvard and their business and economic schools are teaching that, but that's what I believe. And I I believe in a mutually beneficial capital uh, or a a free market. You've got to, you've got to treat capital and, and labor about the same. And corporate America said, "I, I want some advantages given to capital at the expense of labor. And, and the working class woke up, and out of that has come a pro-worker, pro-American family, pro-American way, political movement that is not going to pass. I mean, this is fundamentally a, a once-in-a-two-generation political realignment that we're in the middle of. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on the air. All I got to say about that is amen. And I, I think uh, – I think Breeze has got got a very valid point there. 
And they, and I don't understand how in the world we got uh, Dole or McCain or Romney. Those people were not they were not interested at all in the working class person. They did not know anything about them. They didn't care anything about them. They just wanted to look good and they wanted to put it on the resume. They run for president because I don't I don't think McCain. Or Romney or Dole or any of those all all the way back thought they could win. They just wanted to put it on their resume for the honor of it. And but uh, these people are are truly dangerous, and I think they feel truly threatened for the first time. And Trump, he may not be as pure as a driven snow, but I think he really loves the people in this country, I think he wants to do right by them. And that drives them crazy because no one else gives a rip about the common the common businessman, the common worker, because they routinely export our jobs, export uh, valuable jobs, necessary jobs. They endanger the country by exporting those jobs. I cannot believe what they it, – it's almost as if the country is in a suicide pact or something because uh, those jobs should have never gone overseas. We should be able to make our own antibiotics. We should be able to make our own batteries. We certainly should be able to produce our own energy. And this globalism is not green at all. They, they, I don't know what they're thinking about, but running these huge super ships back and forth across the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, that that is uh, extremely expensive. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Do you know what the I mean, you know what a good economics class would cost you at Yale or Harvard or Stanford and you folks get it about three days a week for free? <laughs> I mean, do you really understand labor arbitrage? Yes. Thankful every day. Nationalist capitalism. I mean, you, you gotta go to Stanford to hear stuff like that and, and, and Harvard and Yale and um pay a lot of money and hear from well educated, prestigious professors, or you can tune into Wake Up Carolina and hear Kind of a good old boy ism take on on what's yeah, happening. I'm but but no, I mean that that's where we are. I mean that that's what happened and led to what had happened was, um, and that led to uh, the eventual what I what I predict. And and Drew and I kind of agree here. I think Drew was on yesterday. It's not a this too shall pass blip on the radar. This is a political reset. This is a realignment. The Republican Party has an opportunity to embrace and accept the American working class as a large part of its voting bloc. Historically, they have voted Democrat. This is our chance to prove to them we're going to advocate for policies and advance an agenda that empowers the American worker. Um, Now, once again, I'm a pundit. I'm not an office holder, so I don't have any ability to shape an agenda or priorities of a of a party, but but that's where I would focus if I were indeed in office. Someone who is in office is with us this morning. Um, Congressman Russell Fry is with us. It's Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y. Congressman, good morning. How are you? I am great. Uh, yeah, and you're right. You know, Bernie Sanders would be proud, Ken, of your free education class <laughs> that, you, that you host every single day. 
you know, he's try he's been trying to do this for years, and you just do it so so much better than he could ever do. Well, I'll speak our language. How about that? I, I want to delve into something with you that I think is extremely important. You're in the room, and 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 you 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 your your time came just as we were going off the air, and Rev and I were so hoping that you would get to say your um your piece while we were on the air, so we could cover it live. But the Durham report and the judiciary hearing, um, Russell, what's your take on that? Gosh, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's 300 pages. So, you know, if you, if you need to, to sleep at night, like read it. I mean, but it's actually good material. Uh, but 300 pages, 6 million pages of documents they reviewed, 500 witnesses. Um, at the end of the day, the Russia collusion narrative was eviscerated by this report and in, in, in every which way. I mean, the Democrats continue to talk about it. They continue to parrot it. Uh, but you read that, and it just leaves no room for error. Uh, I, I, I'm really kind of ashamed at the way that, that they conducted themselves for years, uh, where they parroted this stuff. They, they said that Russia was tied to the Trump campaign. And it, it turned out to all be not true. And, and I think that's the scary part is that a political campaign was able to pay for a dossier that the intelligence community latched onto without looking at the guardrails, without examining witnesses, without corroborating evidence. But they were able to elevate a theory, a theory that, that Trump was tied to Russia um, just based on a dossier, and and they and they so they threw that into the intelligence sphere, and why why does that matter? Well, because they use FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They use FISA to spy on Americans. They use FISA to spy on a presidential campaign. That's some scary stuff. When you think about the reality of of what that means, when you when you when we have a Fourth Amendment, when we have constitutional protections. That's some scary stuff that they're able to, to, to elevate, to spy on campaigns, to spy on American citizens without the benefit of a warrant, without the benefit of a judge saying, you know what, there's enough there, go, go look into this matter. They did that despite the fact they had nothing there. And Durham, who's, I mean, Durham's this, uh, you know, if you, if you think of like an old school sheriff or a, a law dog, if you will, that's who he is. I mean, that's kind of like the, the character that he plays. I mean, he, he, he looks at things by the book, and they spied on a presidential campaign and citizens um, based on a politically motivated dossier paid for by a political campaign. The, 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 this, is, this is the stuff that you would read out of a Tom Clancy novel. This should not be happening in the United States of America. So, Russell, if they were grossly negligent and incompetent, it's one thing. But it seems to me they knew that this was a political ploy. They engage, um, they promote, they they basically put their thumb on the scale of who the president of the United What needs to happen to the FBI? I mean, once again, incompetence and, and just making a mistake is bad enough at that level. But that's not what it appears to be. It was intentional. What 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 do we need to do about the FBI being, um, you know, so one sided? You know, Durham was correct on this. He said some of this is is taking place now internally within the FBI. That's great. 
But I subscribe to his other theory, which is there is so much more under the hood. And so some of that takes legislation. Uh, some of that takes reform. We've got the budget process coming up with these agencies. This is going to be incredibly important. But the big thing to me is FISA, right? FISA, I mean, I don't care who you are. We are the United States of America. We abide by the Constitution of the United States. We look at – we adhere to the rule of law that you are uh, innocent until proven guilty. FISA is different, right? And FISA was meant to look at adversaries overseas, people who had information overseas that, that might be in a terror network, right? Like th this was the intention of FISA. FISA was not meant to spy on American citizens. Um, you know, Chairman Jordan and I agreed on this entirely, which is you have to review FISA. You have to fix FISA uh, before you fix everything. And if we don't do that, then, 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 then we're going down the wrong path. Uh, so at least my mission uh, when FISA is up for reauthorization this year is to fix FISA. Keep it on people overseas, but stop using FISA. Uh, as an excuse to spy on American citizens, which they've done. And, and for those you know, in, in your listenership that think that this might be, well, it's just a presidential campaign. It's just maybe Trump. It's not. It's three and a half million queries on United States citizens every single year. This is done. We have 10,000 people who have authorization to look into this database, but we don't know who they are. We don't know who they are, and – um, we don't know what they're searching for, but we know that they're doing this to American citizens. Um, this was based on an OIG report. That's some scary stuff, Ken. Congressman, news broke yesterday. Uh, I may be, uh, I don't know how much time you've had to really explore uh, what Ways and Means Chair Jason Smith had to say about an IRS supervisory agent named Gary Shapley made some pretty dramatic accusations, said he wanted affidavits, document requests, search warrants wanted to conduct about 15 to 20 interviews. There was this cross-agency stifling by the DOJ. Um, the IRS recommended felony, I mean, th this is all reported, felony tax evasion charges in 14, 18, and 19. Um, the DOJ didn't concur with that recommendation. Where do we go from here? It seems to me, and I want to stop being a partisan for just a second, I'd like to believe I would just be, I would be equally as interested if a Republican president and family members were being accused of these sorts of things, what, where do we go from here in regards to that investigation? Well, you know, for, first of all, to the whistleblowers, I mean, I, I, we always appreciate that coming forward. And I haven't seen um, Chairman Smith's whistleblowers yet. I saw a blip on the radar yesterday. Um, you know, obviously we've been dealing with Durham on, on in our scope. But I'll just say this generally. It, it, is, it is scary to me. Uh, and it is really concerning to me to, to see these whistleblowers come forward uh, and the nature of the, the allegations that they hold. Uh, and, and you're seeing a similar pattern where you're uh, – we saw this in Durham. Um, you, you're seeing this with the IRS. You're seeing this kind of in, in, in every sphere where people at the top are putting their, their, their thumb, as you talked about, they're putting their thumb on the scales and telling whistleblowers, um, despite guardrails, despite protections that they may have, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. And they're, and they're kind of twisting the narrative. That, 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 again, we go back to 
Why are we here? What are what is this two tail you know two tier system of justice that we talked about? Can your listeners see it? You see it? I see it exactly for what it is, uh, and 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 it is. So so while I haven't seen Chairman Smith, I'm not surprised at at the at the things that are coming out of some of these committees. Um, and it's and it's a it's a scary time right now. Well explained, Congressman. Thank you for your time. We will talk um, not next Thursday. Excuse me, not next Friday. It'll be a regular Friday. F R Y D A Y. But the following F R Y D A Y. Thank you, Congressman. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a second with our honor of it. I was thinking, Rev, that that um the nation would be better off if I was in charge. I used to think of some things. But I'm convinced now I need to be in charge of everything. Of course. I mean, if I was in charge of everything, we'd all be we'd all be better off. And I feel like 300 million other people feel I need to be in charge, mm-hmm. in charge and of you, everything. You can fix your mouth to say that. Yeah. W- out one, loud. One of the things we do on this show that I think should garner the support of everybody. But I, mean, I know what we do on this show um, does not garner the support of everybody. The country's divided. Some feel this way, and others feel that way. In my political life, I always felt that despite our political differences, despite our disagreements, the men and women who have served this country honorably deserve our serious support and consideration. I mean, you know, it takes a lot of different kinds of people to make a country like ours um, go, but these are probably at the front of the line. Those who have served um, to preserve our rights to express ourselves as we see fit. We've got some sponsors here that Rev will get to in just a couple of minutes, but we've got a, um, a husband-wife team here. Uh, this morning, the wife made the um, the nomination of the husband. Harvey Wilson is our Honor of Vet recipient this week. Um, served for 22 years in the United States Army. Served as a motor transport operator, instructor, drill sergeant. That scares me right there. And commandant of a non-commissioned uh, officer academy. Uh, Mr. Wilson, good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you doing? So the first question I'll ask is what I ask everybody in your in your seat. What motivated you at a young age to join uh, the armed forces? Well, what motivated me? I was in a household with uh, three older sisters, and uh, I had my second older sister. She joined the Air Force, and asked me. She asked me one day, uh, "Would you like to uh, come in the Air Force like me?" I was like, "Nah, the Air Force is too soft." Well, what I really want to do is I'm going to join the Army because I always had one of my goals was I wanted to be airborne, jumping out of planes, and I wanted to be a drill sergeant. So I saw that, and I didn't want to go to college right after high school, so I said, I'm going to join the Army. Uh, you're from where? I'm a, from a little community called Trio, South Carolina, in Winsburg County. Okay, that's something. I, mean, I, I kind of know where that is. I thought I was from Pamplico, so, you know, we one, one small town brother to, to, to another. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, you, you had sisters. Yes, sir. Um, you, you joined the armed services. What, what about your life changed? I mean, what, I mean, I know the maturity and getting up and having to do what you're told. I mean, but, but, but walk me through. What, what what about that experience made you a better man and made you the man you are today? For me, what it, it changed uh, for me was because uh, I, I grew up, you know, with three older sisters and um, my, uh, like some people obviously had the direction from their dad, but my mom and dad, they were separated multiple times when we were growing up. So going in the Army, I, I gained that discipline and uh, just a different way of life and doing things. And uh, definitely when I had my own family, it was just the ways that I wanted to do it. So I think I, it was like a maturity thing. So I kind of grew up in the Army. It grew me up as a man. So, so you stay there 22 years. Yes, sir. You come home and do what when you get out? So 
came back home after the military and then started uh, working like multiple jobs. So I retired out the army in uh, Fayetteville, right by Fort Bragg. And um, so I took a job initially uh, doing, um, was contractor job doing fiber optic cable installation. I uh, did that for a couple of years and um, moved on, worked for the VA uh, a couple of years. Then I did some uh, contracting job again on Fort Bragg as a VA benefits advisor, trying to give back to the veterans, help them out, get their benefits and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed doing that when my time up there. Okay, your wife says you're very active and involved in your church. Yes, sir. So um, we were in Manor Church for like about 12 years when we used to live in Fayetteville. And so there I uh, was like the greeter at the door. I also helped out with uh, some of the um, volunteering experiences because, uh, you know, it was kind of big thing to volunteer. Like um, we had a lot of stuff called a laundromat blitz where you uh, provide um, – money and uh, detergent for people that wash their clothes and stuff. They also had like um, food giveaways uh, that we participated in, uh, water giveaways, just different things like that. So um, I like volunteering and like helping people and stuff. All right. I, I don't need to get in your business, but I got to ask you this now. So you grew up with three sisters. Yes, sir. You got four daughters. Yes, sir. Whoa. Outnumbered. <laughs> A lot of estrogen in your in your world, right? Yeah, it was. It so, was. So, 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 so explain, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll be respectful. And explain a man growing up with three sisters, ends up with four daughters. Um, you've been outnumbered since day one. I, I was, I was. So it was, it was, it was kind of funny. I mean, because I always <laughs> wanted a, a son, but, you know, God blessed me with four daughters. So it still was a blessing anyway. But, yeah, I was outnumbered. It was like five to one. When you count my wife and then them, it's five to one. <laughs> <laughs> Terribly outnumbered. He ain't yes, got to fight chances. What he's exactly. saying. Um, so, so to a young person, female or male, would you advise them to pursue the military as a career, and why? Yeah, my thing is um, with the with the military, and it's, it doesn't matter what branch you decide to go in. To me, as a if you're coming out of high school and you're not sure if you want to go to college and you want some some direction and something to help you mature, I'm all about joining the military. Um, it's, you know, you get to travel different places like we did. We was at different duty stations, seize things. Um, of course me, I deployed some of combat veteran deployed a couple of times, but you know, you get that experience. You also get the education benefits too. I mean, when you look long term, you, when you're in the military, you know, you get to go to school for free. And then when you come out the military, if you start to go to school, you get that, uh, post nine eleven. that's going to pay for your schooling right there, especially whatever kind of higher education you want to continue to do like myself. I'm using stuff right now, working on a master's degree. So it's it's benefits out of that. You got the also got the uh the VA home loan guarantee, help you get a house. So I mean it's it's good benefits of being in the military. That's very, very well explained. Well, we can't give you everything the military has given you. Yes, sir. But but my sidekick here, I mean, just so y'all know, I'm Batman, he's Robin. No. I mean, it's, yeah. so just so you know, that, that's kind of the way this uh, just yeah. in case you were questioning <laughs> the way the way that the way that worked. But no, I mean in, yes, in all sir. honesty, and I mean this sincerely and um I mean, we have a lot of fun on this show. We talk about serious issues. We right. try to shine light on serious issues. Um, I mean, I, I see the world a certain way. Right. And and people see it a different way. But but exactly. it doesn't, our ability to see the world as we choose to see it is preserved by by the freedoms and liberties that people like you have uh, have fought for and been involved with. And I personally say, say thank you. And I know our audience says um, the same thing. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, sir. But we've got some gifts here. we got some sponsors that have decided that this is – worth them participating in i'll get out of the way and let um 
let Robin explain um, what what all's out there. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so uh, we have title sponsors: uh, Marlboro PD Electric Cooperative, Florence Toyota, and Pepsi Cola of Florence are our presenting sponsors for the Honor Vet Program here, and they have provided, along with many other sponsors, many prizes for you to take with you today when you leave as a as a token of appreciation uh, for your service. First, you get an oil change courtesy of Florence Toyota. You get gift bags from Pepsi Cola of Florence, Tandem Health, and FTC. You'll have gift cards that are provided by Swipe Payment Solutions, Wholesale Carpet, Heinz Furniture, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, Piggly Wiggly of Sumter, Manning, Bishopville, and Camden, and the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center. You'll receive a gift basket from Boykin Heating and Air and also an overnight hotel stay at Hotel Florence in downtown Florence and a gift card for Victors in Hotel Florence downtown. Yeah, I want to say thank you to everybody. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, Rev, if somebody wants to make a nomination, how do they do that? I mean, this is kind of a uh, the wife nominates the husband, um, but but that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, it can be a friend. It can be a confidant. It can be anybody in your world that you think deserves nomination. How do they do that? Yeah, this this program, of course, goes on over the course of the summer. We will take it through around Labor Day uh, this year in honor of veteran every Friday throughout the summer. And we have a website set up specifically for the nomination process. You go to honoravetsc.com, honoravetsc.com. You'll find all the information right there, an easy form to fill out. We'll get that. We'll choose uh, each week. We'll choose a, an honoree and have them in on the air with us on Fridays. There you go. Yep. So so um, take advantage of that opportunity. Josh, let's take a break. We'll uh, we'll come back for a short segment. What, what's, what's Josh saying? You know, I mean, I know we're up against it, but let's take a yep. break. We'll come back and um, let these folks get back to doing what it is they need to be doing. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Last two hours of this week. Um, we're on the air every day. Next week, the following week, um, we're off. Rev's doing his thing. You're going on a cruise? I am. Am I right? That's the plan. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. yeah I'm not. <laughs> you have plans too, though, I bet. Um, yeah. I'll sit on the beach and do whatever. Low comes in here late, moving things around, squeaking, and get some WD. Get some WD forty. It does have a squeak. Some WD forty in there. I feel like I'm looking through the jungle to find Jordan over there. And where are you, Jay? I'm just upset that we're not invited. You don't talk about your vacation plans in front of others without including them on well, an invitation. Rev, would you invite the delegation? Uh, excuse me, excuse me. The delegation. <laughs> this is the delegation right. hour. Right. right. <laughs> Did you see John yes. Fetterman? Have y'all seen that when, yeah. when Federman says the de- and and so this is not the delegation hour. This is the delegation <laughs> hour, and um, I don't want to try that that iteration of infrastructure because no. I kind of goofed that up the yeah. other day, and we may get a letter from the SEC <laughs> yeah. uh, on that. Okay, um, Rick and Bob in here. Lowe and Jordan are here. I, I want to. I want to. We'll get into state government in just a second. Tom way, Davis let me, let me say this. I didn't okay. mean to sure, de- sure. derail you there, but you know you're welcome to come on my vacation if you take me on some of these. You know, nice vacations you guys take. That's the deal. I, 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 Where are we going? Yeah, I, legislative I, junkets yeah. is what. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about you know the boat rides oh, and stuff. Yeah. That he Phil sends us talks pictures. About. Yeah, he sends us pictures from the boat. I've been with Philip. You don't want to split that gas bill. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. No, I mean I expected. To fl- I just want to be a guest. Right. I just yeah. want to, yeah. want to, I want to, for I want to tag along. I don't charge people to come on. I'll um I'll do the harpooning. I, there you go. I'll do harpooning. the I'll do the harpooning and the harpooning of the fish. So, so, so I, I, you, you guys are members of the General Assembly, and you have a responsibility to govern the state. I accept that. But, but I want to get to something that, 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 that we've talked a little bit about. Drew McKissick comes on the show 8.05 Thursday morning, and I kind of drug Drew down the road of where the party is today. 
I mean, both of you are Republican elected officials. I'm a former Republican elected official. Rev is a Republican voter. Josh is a Republican um, voter. There, there has been the mindset that this is one or the other. This too shall pass, or this is a political realignment. I believe it's a political realignment. I mean, I, I believe the weekly standard is no longer existence because neoconservatism, globalism, interventionism was not good for the average American. And it took a long time to realize that, but someday uh, a bunch of people woke up in the Midwest and said, where are all these jobs? You know, where, where are all these livelihoods that were so cool and, and protected? I mean, so, so, so we had a generational thing happen. NAFTA, GATT, TPP. Um, but, but out of that came a a transitioning of working class voters from the Democrats to the Republicans. I mean, that's our base now, guys. I mean, it's the white working class. That's who votes for Jay Jordan. That's who votes for Philip Lowe. When, when I ran, I think I ran at the beginning of, I mean, that's who voted for me. Um, I'm not asking, Jay, I'll start with you. I'm not asking you if you believe it's a, this two shall pass or a, a realignment, but, but how do we, how, how do we advance policies that, that reflect a, a supporting of the American worker, the American family, the American way of life? That's kind of the bumper sticker take that, that I have on it. You know, I think it starts with, um, we talk about it a lot here on the show, and I think you had Russell on earlier, and I was listening. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I'm always interested to hear what he's kind of bringing back from Washington. Um, but it, I think it starts with, um, on the Republican side, on the conservative side, remembering um, we need to work together. Um, if we're going to mess this up, I think the danger we have on the Republican side of the fence is, yes, I do think it is a realignment, it is a shift, but it's a there's a danger zone, so to speak, um, where we can start fighting amongst ourselves. And you saw that, I think, to some degree in the last election. I think Donald Trump um, you had the, the never Trumpers who were historically Republican voters and they decided they were either going to not going to not going to vote or they were going to vote for Biden. Uh, and in doing so, they gave us one of, if not the worst presidencies in the history of the country and set us down a road of political, you know, ruination to a large degree. So I think it starts with this concept, wrestling with this concept of we're not going to agree on everything. But we sure do agree on a lot more than the other side of the fence. And so it, it, it puts us in a situation to have to work together to move the ball forward. But you've accepted this is a realignment. Oh, I mean, abso- this absolutely. is not this too shall pass. No, this, this is a, an, an, a, a new day, so to speak, you know, and it comes along. This is not while, while it's an, it's a shift and a new alignment now, but I would argue that it comes along sort of generationally. Reagan was a new alignment. Reagan sort of shifted the dynamic and the discussion and, and brought some of this, you know, people to the party, Republican Party, who weren't always Republican. I is, think this is, is similar. Is that a similar feature that there's a that a large personality at the center of it? I mean, some of these shifts don't include a large personality. It's ideology. It's a perspective. Reagan was a, a big personality. Trump, obviously, a big personality. I, I think that's a, a, a large part of it. I think you have a lot of people that say politics isn't my thing, and, and they don't go vote, and they stay home. But someone like a Ronald Reagan, who was a movie star before he was a politician, and Donald Trump, who was a household name, you know, master marketer of in many, many ways before he was entered the world of politics, had the ability to bring along a lot of people that just weren't interested previously. Philip, your take on that? 
<laughs> well, my take is politics change. I mean, it, what, 30 years ago, the the state house was dominated by Democrats. Things change. If you start seeing one side attract more voters than you, you have to make policy changes. You have to do something that attracts people to it. The middle class, the independents are the key to that. But turning your vote out and getting those people highly motivated to go vote is really what's critical. You're gonna you're gonna float back and forth in the, in the spectrum of things. We're we're now probably looking at chasing the Latino vote. Uh, you know, go back 30 years, we weren't chasing the Latino vote. But you have to change with the times, and you got to pull the middle class with you and motivate your people. Uh, most people say turnout is more important than the big tent. Just getting your people out and making sure that they're out there. I'd say right now, Democrats are not excited about Biden. We've got a big split in ours. We've got Trump against everybody else, essentially. So it's 50% Trump and 50% everybody else all split up. We've got to get through that system, get to the end of it, and support the winner of it because you know anybody from the Democrat side's not going to suit us. Is it is it fair to say that we're in the process of trying to turn Trump voters into Republican voters? I mean, Jay mentioned he brought a lot of people to the dance that don't normally come to the dance. And I'm afraid one of the mistakes we're going to make is assuming that Trump voters are Republican voters. They're Trump voters. And I think it's up to all of us to turn those Trump voters into Republican voters. Yes, well, we'd, we'd love to, to, to move the, the needle one way or the other. Is Trump electable? That's really where we're at. Is he electable? It's not about how many people are in the race. He loves the fact that I mean, a dozen people running because he's sitting on 50 and there's no way one person can garnish all those, those votes. So yeah, we've, we've got to figure it out and, and fight it out and then get over it and get back together with which one represents the most conservative viewpoint. Jay, do you accept that analysis that a Trump voter isn't a real Republican voter yet? It's up to us to convince them this is the better team to be a part of. I do. I, I think that, you know, it's not just a, you know, go back to what we said a second ago. Trump brought a lot of folks to the table who hadn't voted in either in a long time or at all. Um, it's not a situation where they're going to say, all right, Trump's no longer here. I'm going to vote for the Republican or Democrat. There's a third option where they just stop voting and don't participate. Go back to what Phillips said about turnout being key. If those folks don't participate in the process and the Republican Party can't find a way to connect with, with those folks, uh, then we lose. Let's get to the weeds a bit, and then, and then I want to get to state issues. We'll take a break here in a minute. So, so I believe the central issue, and this is, gets a bit wonky, and, and I'm not a wonk, rest assured. So when a non-wonk tries to get wonky, it gets weird. Um, but, but, Jay, I'll, I'll start with you. So, so I believe, and have read a lot about this. You know how much I read in regards to pre- preparing for the show. But, but I believe that a lot of the reason we're in this realignment is – and this goes to what I refer to as activist conservatism. Conservatives have historically said, get out of the way and let the, let the markets do what the market does. Well, we didn't do that. The, the neoconservative pro-corporate America Republican Party allowed corporate America to distort and manipulate the marketplace. And in capital markets, you've got capital and you've got labor. I mean, those, those are the two primary ingredients. There are a lot of other things on the periphery. But at the end of the day, you've got capital and you've got labor. And for whatever reason, the Republican Party was complicit in allowing capital to gain more favor in policymakers. I'm not talking about in Columbia, but I'm talking about at the federal level. And you guys have to deal with this. 
In other words, corporate America had a lot of fundraisers, hired a lot of lobbyists and consultants, did a lot of real cool things to, to put capital in a better place, and it was at the expense of labor. And the laborer, the American working class, woke up to that. And, said, and when Trump said the game is rigged, I mean, that's a wonkish way of saying the game is rigged. Is it up to us as conservatives to be a little more activist than we're normally comfortable being? So I think when you look back at the, and when the dust settles, so to speak, I think the, the way I sort of perceive what happened, you know, forever and ever conservative politicians uh, like Philip, myself, Mike, you know, we'd say we're for capitalism. Um, what we got at times, especially coming out of D.C., was a uh, tainted capitalism. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, pure. It wasn't perfect. It was, it was slanted in, in a wrong direction. Um, and so there's a difference in when a, when a company hires a lobbyist and says, go to Washington and protect our interest. And nobody's you doing know, anything wrong. I be, nobody's doing no, anything wrong there. You know, you, you're dealing with, we see it in Columbia sometimes. Sure. A, a lobbyist can be an educational thing. T- tell me what your side of this equation is. Tell me why this is going to hurt your industry in South Carolina or D.C. When you get off the rails, I think when we look back again when the dust settles, what I think you saw about the game being rigged, when you hire a lobbyist and they try and uh, tilt the scales in your favor, that becomes a different kind of thing. You're no longer protecting an industry so you can grow your, your business. Now you're trying to set it up so the government benefits your industry and business. That's t- tipping the scales. That's rigging the game, so to speak. Um, and that's going to have negative, uh, horribly negative consequences. I think in, for us, as we sit here, as we go to, back and forth to Columbia, the danger is learn from D.C. and the mistakes they made. And while we're a small, much, much, much smaller version we can certainly fall into some of the pitfalls if we're not careful. Philip? Well, I mean, money is its not just the root of all evil. It's what most of us seek, and business seeks money, okay? I mean, that's their job, and, and the CEOs are there to, to help the shareholders and to get money. And so that's always going to happen. Republican or Democrat side, you know, they're going to chase that money. You know, we, we've got to, as a public, recognize the huge change. So – Anheuser-Busch puts, gives the transvestite one can. He puts it on you know, his Facebook site and shows it. They didn't market it. They didn't send it out to all the, the you know, convenience stores. They put one can out there and went from the number one selling beer, I don't know, number two or three now in, in a couple months' time. So we're in a weird world now. They didn't market that. They didn't say, hey, everybody will look at this. That guy put it on his Facebook site, and this is what happens with one beer can on a Facebook site. So you got to think through who you're trying to attract and realize that, that both sides are looking for ways to criticize and mess with the other side. I'm telling you right now, I told you last week, leave Biden alone. Let that idiot keep running. Don't let him replace him. Get it all the way to the point that they're stuck with that man, and we'll beat him. Yeah, well, it looks to me like they see the writing on the wall when the Washington Post reports that Biden has problems in this investigation, yep. that they're they're telling you they're not real happy with uh, with where they are. They're starting to help us. Yeah, they're sneaking information to us. the The ABCs of government agencies are starting to yeah. Well, yeah, there might be a little problem there. You know, we may have ignored. It. It's a setup, guys. They want us to remove him. Well, Don't you, take you the said bait. that since day one. Let's yeah. take a break. Our first break of this hour. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. 
Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Good morning, fellas. Uh, usually in Potions Corner, uh, it, Pauly's Island now, currently. So uh, Good for you. I'm the official right. ambassador yeah. to Pauly's Island. So <laughs> I tried to get a discount at a restaurant. They didn't give it to me, though. Okay. I, I said, I knew this. <laughs> um, <laughs> congratulations for the delegation getting their uh, bond reform through. Uh, I believe it was signed yesterday uh, by Governor Henry McMaster's. Uh, but I wanted to pose a question. I wanted to ask and see if uh, there was anything being done about the timeline of the docket, how it's taken such a long time to get criminals prosecuted, um, and, and if there's anything we can do to fix that. And I'll take it off there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that, my man. Um, as much as we were talking about national politics, I mean, that, that's your day job. you got two day jobs. you got a business to run, <laughs> and then you've got – um, legislation to be passed. So, so Jay, I'll start with you. So, um, I would point you to the docket depending on where you are in the state. So some, some places do, do pretty good with the docket. Um, some places do terrible with the docket. I know there's a push from what we call court administration out of Columbia to try and work with circuits that are struggling with the speed of the docket. Um, I'll point you down to, or why would some be struggling with the speed of the docket and some would not? It, it comes back to local um, local politics to some degree. You know, you go down to Ori, Georgetown, they have a really good solicitor uh, who does a good job and, ha- and has good folks working with them, and they move the docket well. Um, I would say, and, and I would say you could, I'd say point, I'd point to that one and say look at that one too because they move a ton of cases down there. Ori County has a lot of people uh, and a fair amount of people that come to town and, and call some you know, raise some sand, so to speak. And so they prosecute a lot of cases and they move a lot of cases. Um, you go into some other places and they don't move the docket as well. Um, they just don't run it as well. They don't manage it as well. Ours is sort of in between. Our solicitor does a pretty good job moving the docket. Um, I think the, the struggle that everyone is frustrated about, extremely frustrated about is the Hopkins case. There's no reason why that case is hung around so long. That case needs to be prosecuted and needs to be prosecuted immediately. Why has it not been? Um, I've been told that the death penalty aspect of the case has created um, some issues. They've had trouble getting some discovery they've liked from the uh, federal agencies and things like that. Uh, so it's it's delayed. The a process. death sentence case is far more complicated than one not asking for the death sentence. It's extremely much more uh, complicated. It, it, it comes with it um, many many more intricacies and time. The timeline is totally different, um, and, and as it should be, it should be a different process. Philip, are you happy with the bill passed out of Columbia? Well, no, the bill didn't go far enough, but, you know, I, you can't trample on the Constitution, so we've got that problem. But, it, you know, I fund the criminal justice portion of the budget through my subcommittee, and, and it's a balancing act. You've got to have enough money for prosecution and defense. If you flood the money with prosecution and the defense attorneys they don't have enough of those, then the cases drag and slow down. And so you've got to keep the balance going to keep it moving. So this year, we we put in extra money into both of them. We don't want to hear any excuses from either side of why they're not moving cases. We got a lot of a backlog of cases. Uh, they were it was getting bad before COVID, but COVID made that crazy. We put in some contract attorneys to try to solve that. That didn't solve it. And we are going to follow it very closely and require them to report to us because we want to see the numbers come down so that you have a speedy trial. That's what it's about. If you don't, I promise you the crooks get off more because 
the people, the witnesses start losing memory, the, you know, different law enforcement people move on in life and the cases get weaker and weaker. So we want speedy trials, not, not sham trials, but speedy trials with a balance of money on both sides to make sure they move. I want to stay with you for a second. You're on the ways and means you get these budget estimates and projections. Um, I'm re I'm reading where several States are, uh, when COVID came along and the government pumped all this liquidity in the economy, a lot of it ended up in states' coffers. Higher education got money. K-12 through got money. Um, state governments got money. Local governments got money. But the consumer got money, too. And the consumer spent above their means because they could. Uh, you know, you get a uh, an $8,000 injection of cash or infusion of cash into your world. Uh, most people don't put it under a mattress. They go buy something or do something. There's some states now estimating sales tax revenue could decline by one-third. I mean, that, that's, a, that, that's a scary proposition. Um, some of these states that live paycheck to paycheck, basically, and aren't as fiscally responsible as South Carolina is, is there a reason to be concerned about, I think Jay has said this before, and I'll agree with him, the country looks like we're headed for a recession, uh, maybe a deep recession. The South looks like it, it, it will do better than the rest of the country because of all the growth and, and uh, migration to people who moved down here. But, but is there, is there any reason to be alarmed that when people got all that money and bought things and the state collected tax, that there will be a precipitous decline in revenue? We had two, we had the two largest budgets by far. If you go look at a graph, it's, it's incredible how much larger they were. Uh, we didn't take the bait and go fund recurring dollars with that but we spent the money on on recur on non-recurring issues but we've invested in a lot of things that needed repairs and and roads and infrastructure uh, a lot of money went towards that so we'll reap some benefits from that down south and people are moving here money's still flowing there was a small downturn in the last quarter's expectation in our state government we knew it was coming we've been predicting it and it, it wasn't excessive. There was no panic involved. But what we've done here is we've put more money in resiliency funds. And you know, we asked the voters, would you please vote to make us, to make sure that this government will put aside more money in the rainy day funds? And we did that. So we're being pretty smart about it. And although if, if you had a one-third cut in sales tax, it would hurt, we've got more of a cushion than most states do. But, but, Jay, the principle of conservatism is to believe, you know, that this one-time money is not going to be recurring. I mean, it, it, you can't get drunk with this. I mean, I call it a sugar high. I mean, it, it really and truly was a sugar high, but it allowed governments to do things that they historically have not been able to do. You comfortable with the discipline that the General Assembly showed? I am. I think South Carolina used what I've described as a balanced approach. Um, if you look at other states, I believe not only did they get it wrong, that they're going to pay a serious price for it over the next 10 years um, and when it when it all settles out, how wrong they got it. One of the first things I learned when I got to Columbia is you don't spend non-recurring dollars on recurring line items. Um, that is a, a fast train to economic disaster. So when I say how South Carolina tried to do it in a balanced way, so when there was, over the last couple of years when there was – more money than than normal um what did south carolina do first thing we did was cut taxes uh second thing we did was give money back in the form of a rebate to the tax payers next thing we did was make sure we 
increased, as Philip said, the amount of money that we put aside to make sure that there is money uh, in reserve for when the rainy day, not if the rainy day, but when the rainy day comes to some degree, whatever degree that is. And then invest in, in things like infrastructure and education that, you know, it's like my dad used to tell me, if I give you a fish, you eat today. If I teach you to fish, you eat for a lifetime. Employing that philosophy on a statewide government basis will hopefully yield results. And that look, what does that look like? That looks like what you're seeing now where industry and people come to South Carolina and folks have an opportunity for a better job, a better wage, and that leads to uh, hopefully a better life. I, I want to ask you this because I mean, my mind's going a million miles an hour. We're talking about the past and the COVID money and uh, the amount of the government had and the, the private sector had uh, generous benefits as well. What did we learn through COVID? I mean, obviously vaccines and, and social distancing and glass. And I mean, it, we're functioning differently as a society by some of what government mandated us to do. Um, there's no way we got everything right. I mean, you and I were talking one day about some things that we probably shouldn't have done, some things that maybe we should have done, but we're learning under fire. In retrospect, it's always important to go back and question yourself and say, wow, I mean, we probably... We did a good job here, but we really did a lousy job there. Well, what do you think we've learned as a state if this were to ever happen again? I think the number one thing we learned is how little control we really have over the circumstances of life. You know, when you go back, people made decisions. And if you say have the ability of hindsight, you know, that 2020 hindsight, um, you could say we made some bad decisions based on fear at the time of what we believed and what was a very, very serious, I'm not trying to downplay, it was an extremely serious situation. People lost their lives. Um, but we made some bad decisions out of fear. Um, not as bad as a lot of places. You know, when you look at that, the graphs that show how we handled it and how other places handled it, I'd, I'd take our, um, our, path of, our path forward during the COVID process above just about everybody else. But I think we need to remind ourselves when these issues come around, you know, the Lord's in control and it's going to be what it's going to be. And we have to put our best foot forward. But at the end of the day, we can only make the best decisions we can with the information at the hand on hand and hope and pray for the best. Philip, it was easy for a liberal to say the government needs to be in charge of this. The government has a right to say this and do this. Someone who's conservative in nature, it's, it had to be real hard for you personally to be a part of the government treating business a certain way it never had before. I mean, it, how have you grappled with that? I'm still mad about it. I, I just am. I, I called in the show. I talked on the show about it. And I said, you know, this is this is really odd. We've got, we learned that our government was funding research in China that turned around and backfired and got out of the lab. I don't think it was a scheme. But listen, government takes advantage of any opportunity to control your life. And they did. They went all the way to the point telling you not to go to church. It went so far. I'm so mad about it. It, it, Our kids, I had a a junior in high school. Well, he didn't learn a thing for two years, nothing. And it didn't help him when he got to college because it it made him struggle. So we've got to look at how vulnerable we are to government and how we have to resist their control of our lives. They went way overboard. Some states were totally ridiculous. Ours could have done better. but at least we're, you know, we're, we're back on track right now, but we're living with inflation. Wages aren't going to catch up with inflation. People are going to hurt and continue to hurt over this. I hope we don't end up in a recession. Is it, Jay, is it, is it, um, have we done a postmortem? I mean, as the state of South Carolina 
I mean, they're famous for commissioning a survey or a study to make sure we did this right and that wrong. I mean, obviously, you personally have learned, and I got to believe if we have another event like this, you'll know or be more comfortable. I mean, I think you made an interesting point. The I don't know accounts for a lot. I mean, the, the I don't know how dangerous or, or this is. I mean, to Philip's point, we found out now that more likely than not, it began in a Wuhan virology lab funded by, to some degree, you know, the federal government of the United States of America, shutting businesses down, um, telling, I'll be personal here for a second, telling a hairdresser she can't go to work, you know, for six weeks and earn her income. I mean, it, it's going to be, I got to believe, I know the two of you personally. If the government of South Carolina decides to do that again, they're going to have to drag the two of you kicking and screaming. You know, you, you learn a lot from experience. There's no substitute for experience. I think a lot of people feel that way. Have we done a postmortem? I don't think probably to the degree we should. You know, we, we, we like to say we never closed, we kept moving, but we made a lot of mistakes sure we looking did. back at it. I was, th- I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, um, you know, that whole idea of, of um, closing the boat ramp, that was the dumbest I mean, that was the dumbest of dumb. But fear um, causes irration. I mean, it does. We it, become very irrational when we're afraid. And, you know, then we said you could fish. So you had people, you know, at the sandbar with a fake fishing rod, you know, so they could be out <laughs> on the water. I mean, just, just look back at it again. Experiences, there's no substitute in what you learn from it. So absolutely, I think a lot of people, including us, you know, I've got friends, you know, my father-in-law's a pastor and he he went to a, a live stream type service and he said, never again. Well, I, you know, if, if the, if I have breath in me, the doors of the church will be a hundred percent open at all times. And the government won't either. They'll take me away or we or one or the other. And I think a lot of folks feel that way. Businesses feel that way. I, I know we have friends that said, I won't close my doors again. Uh, they'll take me to jail first. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to come. And so it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what you'll do when the calamity if it if it comes but yeah absolutely we learned a tremendous amount let's take a break we'll be back in just a few moments four three six six one oh nine three seven representative philip Lowe, representative jay jordan with us this morning a couple of breaks ago we started talking about the analytics of um, elections the analytics of campaign philip i'll start with you it, it, it's undeniable that today you can blame a lot of it on trump but it ain't all trump today in america Women voters are more likely to cast ballots in favor of Democrats. Why and what can we do about that? Uh, you know, I think Democrats kind of rule through emotion a lot. And it connects. It connects with females a lot. I, I, we're, I guess the Republicans, maybe the, we're more male-dominated uh, logic or something. You know, a different, it's a different part of the brain. Less emotional. Yeah, it's less emotion. It's like, oh, this is it, and and we're kind of cold about it. So, cold isn't necessarily what w- women are attracted to. They're attracted to that guy that the sympathetic voice and the and caring eyes. You know, it, so we we've got to look through. We can't lose our women. We we've got to have women and 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 get them back on on our side. So, is it time to fake cry, Jay? I mean, is, is it time to shoot? Sh- I mean, you know what I mean. No, I think Philip's right. But I, you know, society's trying to tell us there aren't a difference in the two sexes, but there are. I mean, there are fundamental differences in our sexes, and I do. I mean, in, in, in the way we perceive things to be. And I think Philip's right. We're less emotional. I mean, we're emotional. They're logical. They're just more emotional, and we're more logical. And Republicans have tried to argue things from a logical point of view, and, and women are moved by emotional arguments. Well, when I look across the state house, most Republicans look at what's the problem. Let's 
craft a solution and move forward. Sometimes my wife says, you're not emotional enough about it. Well, emotion doesn't solve the problem. You know, logic and a plan, a path forward is how you solve a problem. Um, I'm a little bit scared, though, because my wife, daughter, mother, sister, I don't want to say the wrong thing sure. and get sideways <laughs> with them. But I think that it kind of circles around that concept. So, but, but if that's the reality, what do we do? I mean, it, well, I I mean you, yeah. Philip said it during the break. We can't win elections without a percentage of female voters. We just can't. I mean, there's no way we can win elections if, if, if 75% of females vote for the Democrat, the Democrat wins. So, so what do we do? I think I'd go back to what my wife, who's, as everyone agrees, way better than I deserve, tells me on a regular basis, which is I need to be a better communicator. Um, I'm still not sure after 20 years of marriage exactly what that means, but I think it means um, that I need to do a better job of listening and then explaining myself. So I think, you know, having that in-depth, having more of a conversation rather than problem solution. But Philip, it's not insulting to say a woman is emotional. I mean, that's not meant to be insulting. I mean, I guess some of the, um, you ready for a good country phrase? Some of the shikoons of feminism could interpret it as being in- insulting, but it's not intended to be insulting. You asked me a question a while ago, and my first response was, I'm mad. Well, I just connected with somebody emotionally with that response. It wasn't a planned one. It wasn't staged. It, I, I expressed myself, and some people said, man, I am too. Are women as mad? I don't know, but I guarantee you, I connected emotionally with some of your audience at that point, because that is an emotion, being irritated or mad and all. So, I mean, then you've got to, I mean, you look at it, listen, the the best guy flirting with the girls at the bar was the guy that communicated the best. We have to communicate with with males, females, uh, all the races, all everybody, sometimes uh, not on an emotional basis every time, but You've got to still find that way to connect with them. Some people want mad. Some people want, well, you know, I, I care about this and, and calm your voice down and pull them into, you know, your communication. Democrats do a good job of putting that emotional side in their talk where we don't do it as much as unless we're just mad about something. Jay, should we, I mean, obviously issues important. I mean, women care about money. Women care about taxes. Women care about safety. I mean, women care about the same thing we do. That there are two things that I think are central to today's uh, elections relating to women. One's abortion. We, we've allowed the Democrats to get the best of Republicans. They've communicated better about a woman's right to choose than protecting life. The other is this, this transgender issue and allowing men to compete against women in, in organized sports. Let's, let's better communicate our position on abortion but let's focus on the fact that a woman doesn't want her daughter to have to compete against a, you know, a, a biological male who's bigger, faster, stronger on average. I mean, is that some of what you're talking Communicate the issue more clearly. But not only that, let's choose the right issues. I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, go back. You know, these, these are, are serious issues to start with. There's nothing flipping about abortion or, or gender issues. Um, but I don't think we've done a good enough job. If you look back at the Republican side on the abortion issue, I don't think we've leaned into enough um, the the value, the beauty of life. I think if we had done a better job talking about how beautiful the process is and how the, the child develops and, you know, you're creating, God is creating life through you. Um, I don't think we've done a, enough in that process. It's just become, you can't do this and you have to do that. And I don't think people um, I've always responded very well to that. 
And, and Philip, have we have we pandered to women? Have we treated female voters as if they don't care about taxes or infrastructure or education? It's only the um, the issues relating to abortion or, or or you know gender rights and all these other sorts of things. So let's talk about pre-marriage and post-marriage and how you communicate with a woman. Pre-marriage. There's a whole different way, a whole different smooth talk, a whole different way of expressing yourself and love and empathy and all that. And then after marriage, then we kind of fall into our natural ways. I mean, women do a different a different fall, but we fall into our ways, and we're less we, – we don't date them. We don't court them. you got to court your voters, and you've got to find a way to communicate with them that connects with them because they're not about just the A's, B's, and C's and the dollars and, the, and all theirs especially you know, they want to know how you're going to treat people. Uh, that's kind of an interesting court voters. See, I think, I mean, I think there's some truth there. I mean, you know, um, a woman doesn't walk up to you and say, well, you marry me. You court a woman. And I'm not being insulting to women. No, I mean, I, no. I know you, could be, you, got, you could get yourself in real big trouble in a hurry going down this road, but it's a problem with Republicans. Uh, we're not getting a high enough percentage of female voters, and we've got to figure out why. And we've got to figure out a better way to win elections. Joe Biden will beat whomever. If seventy percent of females vote for him, yep, uh, you know whomever it is. I mean, you know, we've got to do a better job of arguing our point of view and uh, and perspective. So, we've got a minute, a uh, minute to go. Anybody want to add anything, uh, Jordan? You like you got something on your mind? Well, I got a text from a good friend of mine who wants to know what a shikun specifically is. Well, that takes longer than thirty <laughs> seconds. I mean, there's a um, you know, it's um, in the hierarchy of feminism. It would be damn near the top. I mean, the shikun w- would be about as. I mean, that that would be the the president of the nation of feminism. Is that a good? Is that a good explanation? This I got. I've got to say, this is a profitable show for me today. Philip gave me communication and advice <laughs> that I will take home to my relationships, and and now you've enlightened me. This has been. Mike didn't. He's not here. It was to, worth the he hour. No, he normally brings me coffee. But that's the only downside. Is Mike's well, not I mean, here. We've got coffee in the back room. We'll get to you in about two seconds. Appreciate you, do guys. And that, look, I mean, this is interesting. You know, very seldom do you get elected officials live and in living color saying what it is they believe. I think you guys are fortunate to have two and sometimes three do that. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. That always leads to the conversation. Who of the Eagles had the most successful solo career? Hmm. And, well, and I, I, it's got to be Glenn Fry. Yeah, because he he ventured into acting as yeah, well. Yeah, I right? mean, he, and 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 you know, while while Henley was trying to save the world, trees and whales, yeah, Glenn he, Fry was uh, becoming somewhat of a pop icon or cultural. He was part of pop culture with Miami Vice and. And Smuggler's Blues and all those other yeah, he had hit um, songs of things. and successful acting yeah. career. Now, Henley had a great solo music career, obviously. Yeah, and, and when I hear Henley sing, I think of Don Felder. When Felder goes to Fry and says, man, I want to sing more. I mean, you know, I'm in the band and I'm important. I think we got something kicking here, but I want to sing more. And Fry tells Felder, you ain't singing more. I ain't singing <laughs> more because Don Henley's in the band. Henley's yeah. going to sing uh, the majority of what we have to sing. Howard Stern has an interesting angle on Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Okay. I don't know why, but I've been very interested in the Beatles lately. I mean, I've well, kind good. of... Um, it's about yeah. time. But I mean, I, I've, I've always accepted the Beatles. You've never <laughs> heard me argue that they aren't one of the two greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Um, but but Ringo Starr is a guest on... No, Sammy Hagar is a guest on um, Howard Stern's 
talk show. And I mean, I'll clean it up the best I can. <laughs> uh, well, I'll clean it up enough to stay on the radio. Yeah. But um, I've been imagine Sammy Hagar and Howard Stern. Probably some, you know, profane words included in the conversation. Maybe. But, but they, some way, somehow, they ended up talking about people of influence. And he talked about the Beatles. Obviously, if you're a band, I mean, if Hagar, and it was, you know, Van Hagar after Van Halen, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he's talking about the greatest bands and, you know, where Van Halen stacked up. And we've had that debate. But he talked about the Beatles that he said. And, and, and Stern had an interesting um, theory. Lennon and McCartney fell out at some point in time. Now, now Paul McCartney says on the Howard Stern show that, because, you know, um, Howard Stern says, well, we're left to speculate on why the Beatles broke up. And Paul McCartney says, no, there's no speculation. <laughs> we broke up because of John. I mean, John said he was not going to be in the band any longer. Well, if John's not going to be in the band any longer, it ain't the Beatles. I mean, it's, you know, me, Ringo, and George, but without John, it's not the Beatles. So, you know, nobody needs to speculate. Now, John and I, you know, after that made amends and, and we became great friends. And I mean, McCartney goes on to say, I am fortunate that John and I made up and I spent a lot of time with him. Now, you know, we, we um, at his uh, Dakota uh, apartment in New York City, we, we jammed together. We spent some, some time together and, and we kind of patched up whatever differences we had. We accepted our responsibilities to that disagreement, but there's no debating on why the Beatles broke up. <laughs> The Beatles broke up because John Lennon, I think at a Disney hotel, signed a formal document that that, that said, you know, we're that's no true. longer. At the, at the Polynesian Resort yeah, that, at Disney that's World. That's, that's, that's what McCartney that's said. I guess they were fighting it out at the lawyer's office in mm-hmm. New York, and they couldn't come to terms, and Lennon says, I'm out of here. I'm going and, to Disney. And McCartney's funny when he says, John could be complicated. <laughs> Duh. Really? <laughs> John Lennon complicated? We would have never never guessed that. But anyway, um. Hagar says, okay, you've got a theory. What is it? I mean, I'm in a band. Bands are funky. Bands are, you know, a lot of egos. Lot, I mean, you're arguing over money and who gets to stand where. I mean, Hagar says, you wouldn't believe the things that we argue over and the things that we don't. Some of the things that you would expect to be big deals aren't big deals and things that you're like, really? I mean, you know, the, the food's got to come from here, not there. That's why you're leaving the band or threatening to leave the band. But but it's, it's a lot of, you know, I would imagine a lot of egos and, and, and ambitions. But, but anyway, um, Hagar asked Stern to give him his theory. And Stern goes through about four or five. And the Beagle, I mean, if you remember this, the Beatles, I mean, their, their albums were great, but they were kind of known for singles. I mean, in the day of the 45 single, and the Beatles kind of, um, I mean, they, they revolutionized that. I mean, they, their singles were huge. I mean, they had, at one point in time, Rev, I think they had four of the top five singles in, uh, in yeah. the, uh, what would have been the country, I mean, the, it was Billboard, but it would have been the Casey Kasem countdown, as you and I and our generation refer to it as. Um, but every time they released a single, the record company chose John's song as the A-side, excuse me, Paul's song as the A-side, and John's song as the B-side. And John felt that his work, quote-unquote, was more thorough than Paul's. Now, now you, you got to accept this. We, you, Rev, Rev's a big Paul McCartney fan. Rev has accepted to me that McCartney was the caramel. Lennon was the salt in the caramel. I mean, he was the dark. Uh, Paul was the, yeah. hey, how's everybody doing? I mean, isn't everything great? And, <laughs> and Lennon was like, no, everything's not great. You know, everything <laughs> sucks. I mean, he, you, you would agree to that. Uh, of course. I mean, there was Absolutely. kind of a, um, you know, um, the bright and cheery Paul McCartney, yeah. the not so bright and cheery, <laughs> cheery John Lennon, 
And the record company saw Paul's music as uplifting and positive and John's as somewhat, uh, you know, less consumable. Is that fair? Uh, The the consumer probably wouldn't have as much interest in going down that dark road as they would this happy and cheerful road. And Lennon never got over that. Lennon believed that his music was better. His, his, his writing was better. Never said it. But, but, and Hagar's like, and, and it's, it's, it's Sammy Hagar, I'm not going to say exactly what he says, but Hagar says, <laughs> that's deep, man. And, 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 and Stern says, those were deep guys. He said, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, Paul's still a deep guy if you sit down with him uh, for very long. But, but I just thought that's kind of an interesting theory that when the record company released singles, three or four of the biggest singles they had, McCartney's song always got the A side and Lennon's got the B side and Lennon blamed McCartney or somebody for being kind of second fiddle uh, in the probably the most famous rock band other than maybe the Rolling Stones in the history of the world. Uh, I just think that's kind of an interesting, you would enjoy that interview. I mean, because they talk a lot about a lot about the Beatles and then there's another, you know how it is on YouTube. If you watch one Howard Stern uh, interview, they recommend a hundred to you. And that's where I saw uh, McCartney saying, you know, when, when he sat down, the second he sat down and, and Stern, you know, Stern does, how you doing, man? And seen you sent such and such. I mean, they wanted to, you know, I run in these circles, mm. you know, I don't want to drop name, but I run in these <laughs> circles and McCartney says, good man. I hadn't seen you in a long time. And then he says, um, you know, we would go down the speculative road of why the Beatles broke up and McCartney just stops and says, there was speculation. I mean, there is zero speculation as to why we broke up. We broke up because John quit the band, and and you know, and he formally, uh, I think they delivered some law, lawyers delivered papers to the Polynesian, Polynesian Hotel at Disney, and that's kind of where the formal separation was. But it's it's all it's always interesting to me to watch these guys make up, you know, um, and 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 how unfortunate would it be in McCartney's life for Lennon to die the way he did? And them never even attempt to make amends. I mean, if you don't make it, you don't make it. But but sticking out, you know, reaching out in uh, some sort of olive branch way, and you know, Lennon being—he said John has always been very receptive. And um, and they actually had an interview together where they joked around, you know, with that that strained relationship. And um, <laughs> John would say, "Oh, me, Paul wanted everything his way." And and Paul would say, "Well, John wanted everything everything his way. Imagine <laughs> but, uh, those two people two people wanting everything their way. But together they made magic. Well, no question and, and about history. it. No, no, no doubt about it. And, and you know, um, the last uh, the the last time we go around the sun, the Beatles will still be a relevant rock and roll band. That's a true testament to, I guess, musical genius and musical um, greatness. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So I want to go back to the story. Okay, if he wants to stop talking about Paul McCartney. Yeah. Well, because it's been, I mean, I've been tempted to say something about Springsteen, but anyway. Oh, um, let's move it's on been part- quickly. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Let me change the subject fair, fair enough. immediately and now, uh, because this is so important. And, and to me, um, it means something that you think that now and soon is the time where, you know, this whole Biden thing with Hunter and especially Joe is actually going to come out, and it will have to be discussed and dealt with in the in the national dialogue. Early this morning, I asked you to Google the name of the person who was AG when Nixon and Watergate became known to the public, and his name was Mitchell. John, John, John Mitchell. John Mitchell. Um, Mitchell went to prison. the The point I'm making is 
there are now. Let, let's go through what we know and what we don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to build a case because some of this is speculation. We don't know some of these things. Um, we know we have a couple of FBI whistleblowers. We know we have a couple of IRS whistleblowers. We know we have bank records. We know we have LLCs. We know we have foreign nationals. We don't know whether we have phone recordings or not. I mean, there's, it's alleged that there's 17 calls, 15 um, of Hunter Biden, two of Joe Biden. Um, we know now, latest uh, round of news, we know that we have an IRS supervisory agent named Gary Shapley. We know that he went to the Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, and uh, now Smith could be misinterpreting some of the information, but but Jason Smith is reporting to the American public as the chair of the Ways and Means in the House that IRS Supervisory Agent Gary Shapley asked for affidavits, asked uh, for documents, asked for um, search warrants, wanted to conduct between 15 and 20 interviews, and there was this cross-agency stifling by the DOJ. That's Watergate-like. I mean, that's a cover-up. We we don't know this to be true. It's being reported. And, and I mean, a couple of reputable, I mean, the Washington Post has begun reporting um, some of these things. The IRS recommended felony tax evasion charges for Hunter Biden in 14, 18, 19, uh, misdemeanors in 15, 16, and 17, and they asked for that in January of 2022, and the DOJ didn't concur with that recommendation. That's a big deal. I mean, if the IRS conducted an investigation and made recommendation for charges and the DOJ didn't concur, combine that with the DOJ I mean, the word I'm using is stifling, cross-agency. I mean, the DOJ and FBI and IRS, they work together in some of these investigations. The IRS, from what I read yesterday, has a task force that is responsible for uh, tracking some of these foreign deposits. You know, why is a company in China depositing money in a bank account in America? Um, I mean, in particular, you know, the son of the former president or current vice president, why are those sorts of things happening so, so to me, the biggest story today, now I think Joe Biden ends up being the biggest story, but, but the biggest story today, and that's why I asked you to Google the, uh, the AG who went to jail for covering up on behalf of President Nixon some of what happened at, at Watergate. And, and I think the analogy I used this morning is a fair analogy. I think the, the general consuming public expect politicians to politic. I think they understand that. I, I'm not saying they believe it's fair, that they wish it weren't the case. But they understand that powerful politicians have certain loyalties outside of their normal activities or duties. And the example I gave was, if I'm vice president of the United States, and I got a good buddy who gave me a lot of money, and his buddy probably doesn't have good enough grades to go to Stanford, but he's got good enough grades to go to Carolina Clemson. But if you go to Stanford, you end up going to Stanford Law, you end up working in some prestigious um, Wall Street firm or Washington firm, and your life is fundamentally and radically different as a result of being a, you know, a, I've got a law degree from Stanford. I'm not saying, I, you know, this is the way it should be, but that, there's a certain pedigree that goes along with that. So, so, so Rev's my good friend. I'm the vice president. Rev comes to me and says, hey, man, I'm not sure um, Grayson's grades are good enough to get into Stanford. 
but I'd sure like him to be in there. And I leveraged some of my political influence by calling the provost or president at Stanford or somebody on the board at Stanford, and we make a deal. You know, you want some funding in the next higher education bill? Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll figure that out, but I really need this kid to get in Stanford. I think the general public accept that as uh, not the way it should be, but it's kind of the way the, the sausage is made. It's kind of the transactional nature of American politics. But but if 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 I called the president of Stanford every day, and I got another kid, and another, and another, and another, that's abuse. I mean, I, it's not formally abuse of privilege, but but informally, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And, and I think that's what the Bidens have done. I don't think they had one situation that they saw how to make money and they did it and then stopped. I don't think the Biden family had a kumbaya around a table and said, look, we've got this one chance to put a lot of money in the bank, but we're not ever doing it again. I mean, I'm a former vice president. I, I know everybody in the Senate. I think that's their business. And, and I've, I've referenced to them as political um, prostitutes. I think they're political thugs. I mean, I think thuggery is the family business, political thuggery. And the, the, um, the WhatsApp or WhatsApp communique that the Ways and Means say they have. I mean, they actually showed a copy of it yesterday where Hunter Biden is talking to a foreign national, and he says, don't let me down because my dad's sitting with me. And you don't want my dad mad with you. And you don't want my dad's friends mad with you. I mean, those are his words to a foreign national. That's a shakedown. Sure, that's absolutely a shakedown. But I mean, that's putting the government up for sale. But, but today, the most immediate trouble that I see is Merrick Garland. Because if this IRS whistleblower is telling the truth, forget oversight for a second. For, forget the bank records. Forget the LLCs. Why don't we want to get there? I mean, what is the DOJ's motivation to stop the IRS or the FBI from getting to the bottom of it? I mean, do you really believe that Merrick Garland's going down for Hunter Biden? Do you believe the FBI is going to taint what re- what is left of their reputation for Hunter Biden? No, this is about Joe Biden. It's never been about Hunter Biden. It's always been about Joe Biden. So, so the latest round, I think, puts Merrick Garland in a very tedious situation. And it's interesting on Fox in the last break, they had a big, you know, full, I don't know, the, the entire screen was Merrick Garland's face. That, that leads me to believe that if these accusations are true, now, now, once again, I don't know. I mean, there are some things we know and some things we don't know. But there are credible sources in both the FBI and RS that, that have said, we were told to not pursue this investigation as we normally do. When we went after affidavits and document requests and search warrants and wanted to conduct 15 to 20 interviews, the search warrant is for the laptop and, and a few other things, uh, the, the DOJ strongly discouraged and at times stifled our investigation. That's being directed by somebody. And that's obstruction. Of course it is. I mean, there's no question. I mean, that, that, gets, that gets much deeper than just obstruction. I mean, you're talking about an attempt to cover up a potential crime created or, 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 or um, uh, committed by the president of the United States. It doesn't, I mean, that's, that's Hollywood stuff. That's as big as it gets, as we like to say. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. The shiny objects are prostitutes, drugs, business expenses, tax evasion. Those are the things that most people are. Wow, okay. 
You know, you know what yeah, I'm headed. I mean, right. th- those are the shiny objects. Yeah. And once, I want to make clear, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm in a very similar position in this situation as I am with climate change. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what eventually will happen. But there are some real serious accusations being made. I just went on the Washington Post website because this is interesting to me. They have not touched it since the story broke. IRS whistleblower says Justice Department slowed, stifled Hunter Biden case. The, the Post doesn't run with that unless they believe there's credibility to that whistleblower. But if there's any way to not run that story, they don't run it. Trust me, there's, there's, there's a lot of smoke here. I've always thought there's fire because nobody can explain to me how the Bidens got rich. I think it's in excess of $30 million, maybe not in excess of $50 million. But I think over the years, the Bidens have hustled up about $30 million in payments from foreign governments for what? I mean, you know, that, that's what we need to pay attention to. What did the foreign governments get for the $30 million they paid to Hunter Biden and other members of the Biden family via these 11 banks and 15 LLCs and grandkids' bank accounts? I mean, it's elaborate. I mean, it's extremely elaborate. And we know some of these things, but a lot of these things we're speculating. I have no idea if they've got telephone conversations. I've got no idea if this whistleblower is credible or not. I have no idea if that confidential human source that the oversight committee is talking to is credible. But if they are, it's the biggest scandal in the history of the U.S. presidency. Let's go to the phone. MFR in Clarendon County. Hi, you're on the air. Good morning, good morning. I'm going to make it quick or try to. i got three points. It's Friday. We're talking bands. Obviously, uh, Springsteen and 38 Special had a profound effect on you, but I think you, you, you do name the Beatles, but you leave out two very influential uh, people between the three bands that probably shaped the music that we listen to today. The Beatles, obviously, Elvis is the other one, but Zeppelin is the third. And if you listen to the bootlegs between 72 to 75, those guys are animals. I mean, they just play for three and a half hours live, impromptu, and just go for it. And, I mean, it's just – everybody knows Stairway, but, you know, if you listen to the physical group feedy, the two-sided uh, LP, I mean, there's such great music on there. I mean, you got Black Country Woman, um, you know, The Rover. I mean, all these songs that people don't listen to, but there's so many different shades of light and dark that come with those guys and i mean i just think they don't get enough credit for what they did and i mean that is your that is your uh your your iconic rock star look right there today would you not agree i mean you i got totally agree I, I mean uh, rev and i are both nodding our head yeah, in agreement we totally agree with what you're saying about zeppelin I mean, so i mean I, I know you like springsteen but you know there would be no springsteen without having an elvis and a zeppelin and there wouldn't be a zeppelin or excuse me a, a, a zeppelin without a beatles so i mean you go down that road um, but I, I want to bring up one thing about Hunter, and then I was going to go into something you guys were talking about earlier with Jay and, and Philip. But you missed one thing about the shiny objects. I noticed something in that report that I found fascinating. Uh, there is apparently the laptop was already on the radar, not in 19, but in 18, because the DOJ was doing a investigation into an amateur porn site that were running children. Uh, there was some underage stuff going on, and guess whose name popped up underneath there? Nobody can explain how, but Hunter's in there. Um, and that part kind of gets left off. You have to catch it. It's on two of the uh, different articles you've mentioned. If you pay attention and read through there, you'll see it next to the end of it. Um, but the whistleblower brings that back up, too. 
um, we, we can leave that alone, but, but I don't want to take up all day. But the last thing is back to the, um, the capitalistic part of it um, or, or, or the crony capitalism, if you will. But really what we're looking at is a form of, of fascism. And I'm not talking about um, what the, the anti-fascists or antifa are calling. I'm going back to the, the real sense of the word is what Nazis used. If you go back to Messerschmitt, uh, Krupp, uh, AG, IG, Farben, um, all these different groups that had sweetheart deals with the government. Goering uh, would go in and they would make a deal. Think about um, Krupp being just like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman today. I mean, and, and, and here, you know, the head of the Luftwaffe is signing off. What's the difference between that and what those corporations are doing today? Because some of them are still around today, which is fascinating. Um, BASF is, is essentially AG now, or was what was AG. But these guys go up, and they get deals, and they're running a, a, a fascist state, so to speak, offshore via our government taking our tax dollars, making, picking and choosing the winners of these corporations. Thank you, MFR. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, distortion and manipulation of the marketplace, not for the sake of ethics and morals, but rather profitability. I understand the motivation of a corporation is to be as profitable as possible. I get that. But, but the government can't be complicit in creating arrangements, and that's what I think has happened. I mean, the government can be complicit because it's been complicit in that. But the point I'm making is at, at some point in time, and this really gets some income inequality, and, and this goes back to my, you know, the, the Republicans historically and conservatives in general have said, Income inequality is a byproduct of a fair market. You know, some people work harder, smarter, try, you know, I, I get it. I mean, to some degree, I'll buy into that. But but the the arrangement government has created with, with some of the major corporations in the world have tilted the scales in the favor of capital at the expense of labor. And I think for a mutually beneficial system of capitalism to keep a country stable, and that's what we're talking about, the stability or instability. I think political instability begins when, when so few have so much at the expense of the masses. And historically, that's been kind of a liberal argument. Income redistribution, collectivism, um, socialism to some degree. I'm not arguing for that. But I think populism is inevitably, I mean, it's going to rear its head at some point in time when people feel that way. And, and I think in a, I think capitalism has to consider I mean, not theoretically and not academically, but but I think in real life application, capitalism has to consider the the, the balance between capital and labor. And when, when when governments are lobbied by corporatists, they're not doing it to make labor better. I mean, you talk about labor arbitrage and going off seas to to get things built. I mean, I can build a widget in Wisconsin for a dollar, or I can go to China and build it for ten cent. Cost me twenty cent to get it here. I mean, where am I more likely to build the build the widget? Well, that's not mutually beneficial. Sure, it's good for the corporation's bottom line, but but government has allowed those things. I think trade policies accelerated and enhanced that distortion and that manipulation. And I think for a country to remain politically stable, you've got to equally consider capital and labor. And when one pays an extreme price for the other, you create this this political instability and some, you know, Cheeto Jesus shows up and says something that the masses relate to, uh, you know, like the game is rigged, drain the swamp, and make America great again. I mean, that's what people hear. America was great when we manufactured, and the middle class could could have a better way of life. Um, I mean, I don't think Trump 
went that deep into it. I think I went much deeper than Trump ever has on that. But th- I think that's where we are um, in that debate about this realignment that, that a lot of Republicans believe. I mean, I get a lot of Republicans who hope it is, you know, one of these, this two shall pass moments. I just think we're in a, a just a fundamental, p- probably generational realignment. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, interesting take there. You know, if you look at what you just said, um, you know, the biggest champion or the person who did more for um, the Americans, uh, the, the the downtrodden, it was it was Theodore Roosevelt. No doubt. Theodore Roosevelt. No question. Theodore Roosevelt broke up the robber barons. He he broke up the um, uh, the wealth ruling class, which you know corporations reacted, and uh, you know the Great Depression didn't didn't uh, come too far after that. Um, which, you know, you can say like, uh, eh, you know, with, after the Great Depression, did those guys get their power back? Sure, they did. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. But those, those arguments you talked about, that person that comes along and says, like, you're poor and you're poor because the system's broken, that's exactly how Hitler rose to power. Because of the sanctions we put on in World War II in, to Germany, led to the the German population being oppressed financially. They had no way to go, no way to get out of that debt, and Hitler brought them out of it. Um, so it's it's interesting that uh, if you look into those parallels, it's it's quite interesting. Not, I'm not saying Trump's Hitler. I'm just saying that. I hope that, you're not. I don't think Trump has that, ever displayed no, no, any tendencies no, 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 to no. put people in ovens. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, that, that – um, that fear of you have no future is, is powerful. It is no question. No, I'll totally agree with that yeah. without question. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to talk to you about, uh, you know, this new, uh, whistleblower. I guess we're on to a new batch of whistleblowers. Um, I guess the 1023 form just, you know, was a bust. Nothing's coming out of that. Um, the, the whole, First Hunter Biden investigations didn't work, so now we're on to a new group of whistleblowers and new accusations. Do you see that? No, I, I'm not, I think you're going to appear, I mean, you're a smart man that's going to appear fundamentally foolish if you believe there's nothing here. If you're that blinded by Trump derangement syndrome, a smart man who calls into this radio show and represents a, a different perspective and point of view is going to look like an absolute fool if you believe there's nothing here. If you believe the Bidens are legit and on the up and up, you, I mean, you, you'll get exactly what you deserve, my friend. They're crooks. They're, they're absolute crooks. Well, I mean, no, no, this is this is my radio show. I don't get interrogated on my radio show. You're, you're more than welcome to opine as long and as elaborately as you'd like, but I'm not going to let you interrogate me on my radio show. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to interrogate you. I'm, I'm just saying, like, you, you said I'll look like a fool. Do you, do you see that Chuck Grassley, James Comer, and Jim Jordan keep going on TV saying, well, we've never heard these audio tapes. We don't know if they exist. But you're talking about the audio. we got bank records. We have LLCs. We've got multiple whistleblowers. We've got sure. foreign nationals. We may or may not have re- uh, recordings. We've got an IRS supervisory agent now that said the DOJ basically tried to cover up an investigation. I mean, is everybody lying but Hunter and Joe Biden? 
No, no, I, I'm just. I mean, is Comer a liar? Is Thompson a liar? I'm mean, excuse me, Smith. Is Shapley a liar? Is the confidential human source a liar? Is the foreign national who says he has tape? Is everybody lying except Hunter and Joe Biden? Can, can I? Uh, I I'm going to ask you, where is the proof? But that, point, that's why we're investigating. That J- Jeff, I have said I don't know what the truth is. I don't have any idea if this whistleblower is credible. I don't have any idea if the confidential human source is credible. But but the whistleblower says they asked for affidavits, document requests, search warrants. They wanted to conduct fifteen to twenty interview, fifteen to twenty interviews. They wanted to charge Hunter Biden with felony tax evasion for 14, 18, and 19 in January of 2022, and the DOG didn't concur with that recommendation and shut it down. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's have an investigation. Let's find out who's telling the truth or not. And, and, and here's what I'll say to you. These these tax parallels, do, do you not see the tax parallels with, with Trump, like getting slow walked by the... I'm, I'm not, this has nothing to do with Donald Trump. But you're the one that you're the one that brought it up and said that I was I, I didn't mention Trump first. You did. No, no, no. I'm you. You're, you're saying that there's an, a moral equivalency here. Trump has never been accused of foreign governments paying him for access and influence in our you're federal. Wrong. No, he's not. That there is. You don't you're, believe. You're telling me the Trump Tower deal that Michael Cohen talked about. Trump has never been charged with selling influence. Or access to the federal government. He's never been investigated for that. So let's investigate Trump, but not Hunter and Joe. Do you really believe that there's something out there that Trump could be guilty of that they've not investigated? Do you believe that Joe Biden's... See, see, why are we talking about Trump? Why are we talking about Trump? Trump's not the president. Trump's son didn't just get charged with multiple crimes. Trump's not... uh, Trump doesn't have a paper trail of you know, somewhere between 30 and $50 million making its way to LLCs and mailboxes when there is no legitimate business. We got to take a break. I'm sorry, Jeff. We got to take a break. Back in a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia time. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. I've had a Celsius. I've had a Life Water. I mean, I've had all the good quality Pepsi products that that is required to debate someone as as proficient as... (laughs) As Jeff. Hey, we're talking about presidents getting in trouble. We got one former president in trouble. We got a current president I think is going to get in eventual trouble. I brought up the name Richard Nixon this morning. Here's our trivia question. Ready? When Richard Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford ascended to the presidency. Nixon had another vice president who had to resign prior to Ford becoming his vice president. Who was the vice president to Richard Nixon who resigned before Gerald Ford became vice president? <laughs> I mean, imagine this. Ford gets the presidency without being elected vice president or or president. Right. Is somebody there? Let's go to the phone. Hi, you are on. You know the answer? Uh, Sparrow Agnew. You're right. Who is this? Where are you calling from? This is John. I'm from Florence. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate your calling. Spiro Agnew was, um, he was vice president from November of 19... 19- well, excuse me, that's his birth, and, and, and he, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't vice president from 1918 to 1996. He was um, 1969 to 1973 when he resigned, and then Gerald Ford became vice president. Nixon gets in trouble, um, resigns, and Ford ends up president. You know, one of the, and I was thinking about bringing the country together, a lot of people believe that Gerald Ford would have gotten elected president had he not pardoned Richard Nixon. 
but he did that for the quote unquote goodness and well-being of um of America. So um there's your answer to the trivia question. I want to say again, it's a little bit like climate change. I don't know who's telling the truth or not, but it appears to me there are people trying to stop others uh, who are in hot pursuit of of the truth. And uh, if Merrick Garland is indeed doing that, there will be a and found out there will be a very serious price to pay in regards to that. And Jeff mentioned the the Comer investigation as if it was done. I mean, it's not done. We're nowhere near done. I mean, we're only beginning um, to investigate the Bidens. And I mean, I, I just think, well, here we go. You're at traditional media. The walls are closing in on, uh, on <laughs> oh. Hunter and Joe Biden. And I don't give a rat's ass how many prostitutes Hunter Biden's been with, how much crack he smoked, what's he, what he's addicted to, how many sex clubs he's got kicked out of. I mean, that that's a troubled man. And God bless him. I wish him well in his future endeavors. But but being the conduit to funnel money to a president, if it, that's what he's doing, I mean that that's another animal and needs to be far more seriously considered than the media up until now have been willing to give it. Thanks. They've, they've asked a question or two about Joe Biden. His answer is that's a dumb question. Yeah, malarkey. It's malarkey. Um, I don't know much about malarkey. I know a lot about Pepsi, and I want to thank Pepsi, our good sponsor, for our takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. And if you aren't going to indulge yourself in, a, in an adult beverage over the weekend, I would strongly encourage you to make Pepsi your choice um, if you choose. And I'll tell you, I don't know um, I don't know if beer could have the effect that, that Celsius does. I mean, I <laughs> am, like that. I'm ready to roll you like that if stuff. I get one of those <laughs> under my belt. I am. Um, I mean, I talk fast anyway. Good land. I'm, you can't even understand what I'm saying after a um, – but but thanks to you. We'll um, enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.